Did you read any articles about how they got some of these sound effects, like the sound effects for the big sister? No, please tell me about it. Oh, dude. Um, I, I'm i sorry, because I can't remember what it was. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, man, you opened a door. Now I want to know. <laughs> <laughs> You are now listening to the RF Generation Playcast. The Playcast is the place where the single banana and I, Gregost81, discuss the monthly community playthrough game selected by us and shared by a community of gamers on rfgeneration.com and social media platforms like Twitter and Discord. This month, we are returning to the world of Rapture as we revisit the Bioshock franchise. In this episode, two years after playing the original game, we're submerging ourselves into Bioshock 2. Is this a worthwhile sequel for fans of the original game? Stay tuned for our discussion. You can listen to the show on Apple Podcasts and Podbean, or just visit rfgplaycast.com. On Twitter, I'm at rfgplaycast, and Rich is at the single banana. Most importantly, be sure to log on to rfgeneration.com to discuss the games with us and have a chance to get mentioned on the show. Thank you as always for listening, and now, on with the Playcast. 22 miles of hard road, 33 years of tough luck, 44 skulls buried in the ground, crawling down through the muck, oh yeah! Johnny don't like the school One day Johnny gonna do something Show him he's nobody's fool Oh yeah! What have you and the wife been up to during all this? You guys been watching any Christmas movies? Uh, you know, it's funny. We have not watched a movie in like 
I think it's going on five weeks, wow, which is man. very unusual for us. We usually watch movies every single weekend. One of the things that's kind of a silver lining to that is we've been playing way more cooperative video games, which is amazing. So I'll get into that when we talk about what are you playing. Uh, But I see you have continued the movie watching (laughs) tradition. Uh, And I want to throw out there, I had a full list of more horror movies that I had watched that I was going to talk about in our last episode for the Fatal Frame episode, and I just completely forgot about it. So if you want to talk movies, I have more horror movies. They're not necessarily Christmas movies, but uh, I'll let you kick it off because uh, you wanted to talk about movies. Yeah, that would be great. I would love to talk about that because I'm always in for some horror movie recommendations. You know how that is. Yeah. But uh, yeah, just continued the movie streak with the family. I'd mentioned really it was on an outtake in our last show that I put at the beginning how uh, I've been watching some movies with my kids and they're sort of at the age where they can enjoy somewhat more adult films. However, as usual, I'll probably get chastised for what I'm letting them watch. But I just remember as a kid watching these same movies at their age. I turned out okay, I think. (laughs) It's a matter of opinion, I know. But um, (laughs) I had mentioned wanting them to watch Jaws and that uh, we were going to watch Commando as well. After uh, the response I got from my kids regarding Terminator 2. And so we did watch Commando and they loved that. They had been binge watching Who's the Boss episode. So Alyssa Milano is actually the daughter in Commando. So they were really into that. My daughter thought that was really cool. And of course, my son was really into the action. And then I made the executive decision to uh, let them watch Jaws. They loved it. They weren't scared at all. I guess it kind of surprised me that they weren't so scared of that movie like I thought they would be. You know, I remember watching that as a kid, and it really bothered me as far as going to the beach. But uh, I guess our kids now are just so numb to uh, what's going on in the world. So uh, that was quite a surprise, and they they love Jaws a lot. But uh, the one thing I sort of noticed about Jaws is that you don't really see the shark until maybe three-quarters of the way through the movie. Yeah just kind of wild but uh yeah. i remember jaws too i think the uh shark's a little more prolific in that and i think they would enjoy that too which that is a great sequel by the way oh interesting mm-hmm. i wonder yeah. if it'll pop up in a topic later on in this episode <laughs> a little foreshadowing there <laughs> <laughs> and then we also watched the movie gremlins this is the second time i've seen it with my daughter she loved it but i was a little worried about my son last year watching it but he loved it movie and he now wants to see gremlins too Yesterday, we watched Die Hard and Predator. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) And uh, they were a big fan of those movies, too. The language in those movies is kind of rough. But as far as, like, adult content, it wasn't so bad, even though there is that one scene where uh, the girl comes out of the office during the Christmas party and you can see her boobs. So, uh, yeah, my my son got a little thrill in seeing that, I assume. I don't know. I probably would have at that age. So the next film that we're considering watching is Running Man with Arnold Schwarzenegger. They're in a big Schwarzenegger kick right now. They love him, and they're just like, how many movies did this guy make? (laughs) You know, and I was like, yeah, he was kind of a big deal back then when we were growing up. So yeah, Running Man uh, is the next one we're going to watch, and I'm pretty excited because I love Richard Dawson. I think he's so awesome in that movie. That's funny. I've actually never seen Running Man. Oh, really? Yeah, man. It's, It's one that you should check out. It's the movie that I thought that of all the action films that they made video games for, Running Man is the one that is specifically 
set up to be a video game. Basically, Arnold Schwarzenegger becomes a contestant on this game show in the future. It's a survival game show where he has to fight all of these, like, bosses and, uh, you know, make it to the end if he can. It's really cool, man. I I highly suggest checking that out. And also, whether you knew this or not, but uh, Stephen King actually wrote Running Man. I think I did know that. Rings a bell. But, uh, yeah, those are all the movies that we've been watching It's been a lot of fun with the kids watching these films, Uh, but now we're kind of stuck in a rut of episodes of Family Matters. So, uh, yeah, got that going (laughs) on right now. How do your kids like that? Do they connect with the Urkel character (laughs) or like, how is that going over? It's funny. My son, I've never heard him laugh so much. He loves the Urkel character. My daughter, on the other hand, started out being very sympathetic toward him. She's like, I feel so bad for him, you know? And the first season, he only shows up like a handful of times. And so he really becomes a part of the cast in the second season and becomes a lot closer to the family and not an outside character. So now she really, really likes it a lot. I don't think that show would have survived without him. And I'm sure your children made the connection with Carl Winslow. Hey, that's the guy from Die Hard. Yes, they did. And the crazy thing is that (laughs) he's a cop in Family Matters as well. And I was like, clearly Family Matters is just a spinoff from Die Hard. Yes. Same universe confirmed. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) You heard it here first, folks. Cool. Well, like I said, I have a bit of a list that was intended to be gone over on our last episode, so I won't take too much time on it, although I'm looking at it, there's a ton of movies on it. Did I just skip you accidentally last month? No, I didn't put it in the notes. Uh, I don't think we went too deep into movies, or maybe I just didn't bring it up, totally forgot about it. It wasn't a case of like, oh, I wanted to say something, but I didn't get a chance. It's just like totally slipped my mind. Gotcha. So... I watched a bunch of movies that people have seen a million times. Like, I watched Nightmare on Elm Street again, the original. It's one of my favorites. Nightmare Before Christmas, I couldn't remember if I'd ever seen it. My wife and I enjoyed that. We watched this movie called Hashtag Alive, which is on Netflix. It's a Korean zombie movie. It was pretty good. Not great. Not an A-plus movie, but worth checking out if you need uh, something to watch and you like zombie movies. There's this movie called Triangle which is a weird sci-fi horror movie. And the less I say about it, the better. It seems to be kind of hit or miss for people. My wife hated it. I really like, I wouldn't say I loved it, but I really enjoyed it. So you might want to check that out. And then two of the movies that really hit me, one was called The Lodge. Have you ever heard of this one? No, and I feel like you mentioned that on the last show. Yeah, so not to be confused with a movie I mentioned two episodes ago called Stories from the Lodge, which is a British horror comedy. That's Stories from the Lodge. This movie that's called The Lodge is a psychological, slow-burning It's almost hard to call it a horror movie. It's more like a psychologically traumatic movie. And it actually prompted that tweet. I don't know if you saw it, but I wrote a tweet. What's a movie that you're very glad you saw, but you will not recommend to anybody and you will never watch again? And that's what The Lodge is to me. It's a really slow burn, like heavy hitting gut punch and just kind of a brutal movie. What uh, responses did you get? I'm curious. I can't remember how people have to look up that tweet on my timeline because I did get a few that people talked about. Speaking of brutal and hard hitting movies, I'll end my little list here with a movie called The Night Comes For Us, 
which is an Indonesian action film from the same people who made The Raid and The Raid 2. So if you're into those kind of films, I believe I've seen The Raid, but I actually want to rewatch it because I don't remember it at all. But The Night Comes for Us and these kind of movies in general are just ultra gory action films. And Sounds right up our alley. Yeah, I think you would really <laughs> like it. Definitely kind of throws back to the like bloody kung fu movies that we've talked about in the past. But one of the things I really enjoyed about this movie is that the female characters in this movie carried the film on their shoulders, especially there's one actress named Julia Stell played a character called The Operator, and she's just this assassin who is trying to protect somebody and gets in all these awesomely choreographed fights. And again, this movie is gory as all get out. So it's not a horror film. It's an action film, but they don't pull any punches, no pun intended, with the blood and guts. And there's this one scene, I don't want to spoil it, but it's just one of the most badass moments I've ever seen in a film with Julia Stell in it. It's a good movie. The one thing I would say is that it feels a little bit stretched out, so it's about two hours long, and some of the fight scenes do feel like they go on forever. And if they're in between two characters that you're not really caring about, then they can feel like they're dragging a little bit, but not in a way that makes me say, oh, the, the movie sucked or was boring or whatever. I still really, really like the movie. I just thought there were a few of the fight scenes that got a little lengthy and a little long in the tooth. <laughs> and I was like, okay, they could have wrapped this up a little bit sooner, but they were just very proud of the, the fight choreography. So that's a good one. The night comes for us. So that's it for movie. I'm glad I got to go over some of those because, uh, again, uh, that was from last episode that just totally got missed. So that was cool. Yeah. And I think I actually missed talking about a few movies that I had seen. They're newer movies. Have you ever seen Midsummer and Hereditary? I have to admit I have not. However, <laughs> those are two movies for me that my interest level in them is not high enough that I have watched probably more YouTube videos about those movies and have watched video analyses of those movies fully spoiling everything, <laughs> uh, but have not seen the movies. You obviously have seen them. What's your take on them? Yeah, it's so funny. Whenever I would ask a lot of my friends that watch horror films about these films, they were always like divided. Some people really loved Hereditary. A lot of people thought it was awful. Some people liked Midsummer, and then other people didn't like it at all. I actually liked Hereditary better than Midsummer, and I don't think that's the popular opinion. I think they're both films that are worth watching, but as your question asks, what films would you recommend that you wouldn't watch again? I think that Midsummer is definitely one of those films. I might actually watch Hereditary again. I thought it was interesting enough. They're actually from the same director, and I do like the stuff that he's doing. His name's Ari Oster. It's definitely different and interesting stuff, and you know I'm excited to see what else he puts out. Uh, but uh, I'm sure we've got some uh, souls out there that would like to tell me why I'm wrong on picking Hereditary <laughs> over Midsummer. So bring it, guys. I want to hear it on uh, social media. To be clear, I, I'm going to put my foot down and say a difference in opinion that will not count as a correction. Right. So there's that. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of assholes, let's get into <laughs> mistakes our old friends pointed out. Did you have any, Sean? Well, I actually had the pleasure of listening to our last episode 
today because as we record, it just came out yesterday. So mm-hmm. uh, it's fresh in my mind and I just listened to it. And I happened to note just one time that I misspoke when I was talking about the controls. I said that if you click the left stick, you can turn around in character mode. I just misspoke. I meant to say camera mode. So if you're in camera mode, that's when you click the stick to do a 180. And the other thing was, I forgot when we were talking about our compilations, I forgot one of my favorites. So I just want to throw it in that there's a comp called DGC Rarities. So it totally falls into the same vein of like all the comps I was talking about, basically, which is alternative bands from the 90s, this being DGC Records. So a lot of the bands I talk about a lot, Weezer, That Dog, Sloan. Um, Nirvana's on there, right? Don't they have a song that's not on anything else? Yeah, I think so, but I can't remember. It's another one that I don't have. And I'll throw out there, I've been thrifting a lot just for something to do and something to get out. And I've been looking for a copy of No Alternative, which is a CD that I remember seeing. It's one of those CDs you see at every thrift store every time you go thrifting. And now that I want it, I can't find it, which is so funny to me. Yeah, we talked about that on the last show, I remember. Yeah, so I just wanted to throw out DGC rarities, and uh, those are my corrections. All right, so for me, this isn't really a correction, but it's something that I actually looked up. You had mentioned the Karen Carpenter story that was made with Barbie dolls. Oh, yes, yes. And so I found the name of it. It's actually called Superstar, the Karen Carpenter story, and it was released in 1988. Now, I haven't watched it yet. But I am so interested after reading the Wikipedia article about it. So uh, that's definitely one that I'm going to check out. And then not something our friends pointed out, but something my wife pointed out. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) She was listening to me edit the last episode and she said, are you doing a music show or are you doing a video game show? (laughs) So something that she pointed out and it just really really cracked me up i was like yeah we like to talk about music quite a bit because it's something that sean and i really enjoy and i think our listeners do as well yeah she wouldn't be the first to say something along those lines so (laughs) appreciate the feedback (laughs) (laughs) so speaking of music take that wife let's go into the concert cast
we've done these before. We're going to do another albums of the year, top five. And when I say the year, I actually mean a year. We're going to do 2001 this month. And I'll just go real quick, a recap of the ones we've done in the past, if you would like to go back and listen to them. So on episode 53, we did 1989. On episode 60, we did 1986. Episode 66, we did 1995. Episode 74, we did 2007. And like I said, now we're going to do 2001. This was a year that I chose, and I'm not exactly sure why. I had a very motivated reason for picking 2007 the last time we did this. But for 2001, I think what I did was take some albums that I knew I could build a list off of. There's two Mm -hmm. albums in particular that are on my list that I said, oh, these came out this year. Let's do 2001 and maybe I could find some other stuff to put on my list. Like it was that kind of thing. So for me, my criteria is as usual. I just listened to what I wanted to and listened to what I liked, dug up some stuff I haven't heard in a while, tried to find some new stuff. And uh, it turned out the new stuff and the hipster picks didn't really make it onto my list. This Mm. may be the most mainstream list I've ever made for one of these. So what were your thoughts when I chose 2001 as a year? Did you have anything that kind of immediately sprang to mind? Because for me, and I'll be honest too, like 2001, I graduated high school in 2000. So I was in between the really clicky high school musical tastes that I had with my friends and being out of high school and having this kind of freedom of, well, nobody cares what I actually like. So kind of a weird era for me in my life. And looking back on the music, it's it's funny how many albums I found that I used to adore and love that I listened to uh, <laughs> in researching this. And I was like, what the hell was I thinking? So what about you? When you mentioned the year, it automatically brought back really good memories. This was my first year in graduate school. And uh, I made two friends that were a year ahead of me in graduate school. They were around my same age. We became really tight. And one of the things we used to do was we used to make each other mix albums. It was cool. It was a good way to explore music. They were into a lot of different things that I wasn't really into at the time. And I remember they were both really into Americana music. So that's where I started listening to more kind of uh, folky Americana stuff And also, I started listening to a lot of um, lesser-known alternative bands at the time. And so, that's probably what my list is going to be mainly comprised of. But it was a great time for me musically. So, when you mentioned the year, I couldn't think of any albums off the top of my head that came out that year. But I definitely knew it was a good time and that I would have a um, great well of albums to draw from. That's good, because I'm actually wondering now, like... On my list, there's a few things that uh, Rich is going to pick this too. We're going to have some overlap, which we've discussed in the past that we now see this as a potentially good thing. Sure. Uh, But to hear you say you were more into underground and folky Americana type of music is uh, a little bit relieving. Well, I would say it was underground at the time. I don't know that some of these bands would be considered really underground these days. Okay, fair enough. Well... I guess let's get started. Uh, I'll go first since I chose the year and wanted to go with this era of music. So my number five is The Blueprint by Jay-Z. Everybody knows Jay-Z. He's one of the biggest rappers of all time. He kind of broke into the scene with an album called Reasonable Doubt, which is an amazing album, a total classic. 
still worth listening to today. But he kind of started breaking into the pop rap realm after that. With reasonable doubt, it almost felt like he was just Biggie's protege at the time. And maybe he was, but in whatever way he came up into a more pop-oriented sound. And The Blueprint is one of his best albums for that. A lot of the songs were produced by Kanye West before anybody who knew who Kanye West was. Uh, It's got some amazing songs on it. It's really good start to finish, really no skippers on it. So again... (laughs) As you can see, I've warned you, my list is going to be ultra mainstream, and I'm starting with one of the biggest rappers in the world, one of the most classic rap albums ever. That's The Blueprint by Jay-Z. That's my number five. Yeah, man, that's a great pick, and I definitely remember Jay-Z really blowing up around that time. So, yeah, man, very, very cool. My number five pick is uh, someone that I really got into in 2001, as I mentioned before. My friends were really pushing artists and albums on me, and this is going to be a controversial pick, to say the least. You and I have talked before, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think you've mentioned on the show before that as far as artists are concerned, you can't sometimes separate the music from the person. Mm -hmm. As far as if an artist does something that you don't agree with, even though you may enjoy the music, you may stop listening to them. Yes, that happens to me a lot. I don't talk about it too much. It's kind of a personal thing unless somebody did something really bad and I feel like a friend of mine like doesn't know about it or something. I'll have to just kind of break their heart and tell them like, (laughs) hey, did you know what that guy did or whatever, you know? But yeah, I do struggle with that, separating the art from the artist. Yeah, um, probably the opposite in that I can definitely separate the art if it's something that really provokes feelings in me and that I really enjoy. And so this pick is a bit controversial, and that's Ryan Adams' Gold. It actually came out in 2001. This was the first year I really got into Ryan Adams, and my friends let me hear a few songs, and you know I just fell in love with his music. And to this day, I will still put on his albums, and I think this is probably, I wouldn't say it's his best, but it's one of his better albums, and is definitely the album that introduced me to him. So yeah, that's the one I'm going to go with in this instance. I do understand that this guy uh, more recently has a very checkered past. And I get that, but uh, I will say that one of the positive things that has come out of this is that I'm able to get his vinyl cheap, and it's popping up a lot in record shops. (laughs) (laughs) My goodness. That's funny. I got to plead ignorance on Ryan Adams. I don't even know what he did. And I'll leave it to the Googlers off air to figure it out, or I'll look (laughs) it up later, because I I don't even want to know. All right, let's move on to something less controversial. Uh, My number four is a band we've talked about a lot, and this is probably the most likely thing to also be on your list. The band is Fugazi, and this is their last album that they ever made. It's called The Argument. Now, I'm going to be honest. This isn't my favorite Fugazi album. Red Medicine is my favorite Fugazi album. However, Fugazi never missed. They don't have any album that isn't at least an A, if not an A+. The Argument is a phenomenally good album. So it starts off with this song called Cash Out, which actually, I have always made a connection between this song and there's a song on 
the album by Living Color called Vivid, which most people know for Cult of Personality. Mm-hmm. But there's a song on that album about people getting evicted from buildings for zoning reasons or whatever. And this song Cash Out that kind of kicks off this Fugazi album is the same exact theme. So those the songs are always kind of in my head together. One of my favorite tracks on here is called Full Disclosure. You know, Fugazi is one of those bands that's like controlled chaos. They are just splayed out on the stage when they play live, but they're so in tune with each other, like famously so. If you listen to interviews, there's a lot. (laughs) Fugazi probably has the most lore around them as any band that has ever existed. A song like Full Disclosure, I think, is a really good intro if you've never heard them before. And uh, Kathy Wilcox from Bikini Kill does backing vocals on this song. And it's just one of my favorite Fugazi songs ever. So, yeah, I'll leave it at that. It's it's just a really good album, really good send off. I wish they were still around, but all the guys who were in the band went on to do other things. And you can follow that if you can't get enough. But uh, it's a really good album. Fugazi, The Argument. Well, you'll be happy to know that it's not on my list. Oh, okay. I've actually never heard it. My wife is actually the bigger Fugazi fan than I am, though I I really do love their music, and I'll have to check that out. So thanks for the recommendation. Yeah, it's really good. All right, what's your number four? All right, my number four is a folk artist, someone I, again, really got into via my friends in graduate school. She is an extremely talented musician. You'll probably remember that a few years ago I saw her here in town by herself, and I've actually seen her twice. Her name's Gillian Welch, and she has a husband named Dave Rawlings. They're both musicians, and the first time I had seen her, she played and sang backup vocals for him. When she plays, he actually plays backing guitar for her, and he has a band called Dave Rawlings Machine. But Gillian Welch put out an album in 2001 called Time the Revelator. And honestly, it is one of the best folk albums that I've ever heard. A few of the tracks, of course, Revelator is the first and the title track of that. She does a song called Elvis Presley Blues, which is fantastic. And she also does one called I Want to Sing That Rock and Roll. Whereas Ryan Adams is more of pop rock with Americana lyrics, Gillian Welch is purely folk. It just kind of heightens this resurrection of folk music that was going on around that time. Uh, You may remember magazines such as Heart Magazine that I was actually subscribed to to kind of keep up with this type of music at the time. But, uh, But yeah, my number four is Gillian Welch's Time. And if you're any way into folk music... Bob Dylan, Woody Guthrie, any of that type of stuff, I would definitely check out Gillian Welch's Time the Revelator. I may check it out. That is not my cup of tea as far as musical genres, and you know that, but uh, I've heard you talk about her enough that maybe I should just at least give it a chance. Well, I'll move on to my number three. This is an interesting album because I can remember back when this band kind of came out and they were a really kind of hated banned by a lot of people and that's the strokes their (laughs) debut i knew you were gonna pick this album (laughs) their debut album is this it came out in 2001 and it's funny looking back i was in the zeitgeist of hating them when they came out i talked about this a little 
in our Darksiders episode when we had Frank on the show and we were talking music. The whole thing was, oh, they were ju- they're just industry plants. They met at a prep school. They're all rich kids who, you know, were manufactured or whatever. And all of that could be true. And I don't care because it's an amazing album. It's, it is. It's a great album yeah. start to finish. It has some great old hits that still hold up and the deeper cuts hold up. It has uh, Last Night. It has uh, my favorite Stroke song, which is hard to explain. It's funny, too, because it's a case of you don't know what you got until you lose it. Because now in 2020, as we're about to step into 2021, over the years, we've seen music morph into what many writers have called a mono genre, which is we have EDM and even the country artists are mixed with EDM and a little bit of hip hop, a little bit of pop. And people will claim that mainstream music is starting to sound more and more the same. Back in 2001, you had what was called this garage rock revival that the Strokes were a big part of and the White Stripes and the Yeah Yeah Yeahs and all these other great bands. I mean, man, we didn't know how good we had it. You know what I mean? Or maybe, you know, I'm speaking for myself. If you look back then versus now, the state of rock and roll, rock music, you know, I'm looking back kind of wistfully thinking about, wow, the Strokes they crushed it with this debut album. Their next album, Room on Fire, was also a masterpiece. Yeah, what a great band. And I'll just echo that. I feel like up until that point, rock music was a little stagnant. And bands, like you mentioned, The Strokes, The White Stripes, even like The Shins, which I know you're not a big fan of, and Spoon had kind of popped up around that time. And it's a lot of the stuff that I was listening to. And uh, I definitely have the strokes on my list of honorable mentions because I knew you were going to pick this, (laughs) but it wouldn't have made my top five anyway. But if my wife made a list, it would be number one. We played that album out, man. It was a great album through and through. And I totally agree with that pick. Good one. Awesome. So what's your number three? Uh, My number three is a band that came out around that alternative grunge era. They had a hit with Novocaine for the Soul. And I'm sure you remember the Eels back then. Yes, yes. But their album Soul Jacker that came out in 2001 is by far to me their best album. It is incredible. It's a lot more distorted and punk-like than some of their earlier albums that are just kind of whimsical. It's very, very aggressive and just a cool album. There's some great tracks on there. There's one called Dog Face Boy, which is the track that starts it out. And then there's another song that still kind of has that whimsical feel, but I think it's my favorite song on the album. It's called Fresh Feeling. You know, whether you like the eels or not, I would say give this album a spin. And I think you may kind of change your mind and really enjoy this album. Uh, their lead singer, his name's E, and I've you know been following this band for years. Love his voice, and it's an album that I still play constantly to this day. So uh, again, my number three pick is Soul Jacker by the Eels. That's awesome. My friend Liz, who I was in the band Annoying Customer with, is a huge fan of the Eels, and I know that she is still a huge fan because she texted me about them a couple of weeks ago and. <laughs> said, oh, I was listening to the Eels. I was thinking about you. Do you still listen to them? And I I had to correct her because I was like, oh, I was never actually really into them. It was Jesse who was really into them. It's funny that you put the Eels on your list after I had this conversation. So shout out to Liz. 
for liking the eels. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny. I uh, actually saw them at a Lollapalooza, and there were probably about 10 people watching them on a side stage. So after it was over with, I had one of the programs that they gave out at the Lollapalooza, and I had it signed by all the band members. So if I can actually dig that up, man, I might send that to your friend. Oh, nice. Okay. All right. Well, let's go for my number two. So (laughs) this is a weird one. It's something that I've only gotten into in recent years, despite it being one of this band's fan favorite albums. And it's almost embarrassing to say it out loud. It's Take Off Your Pants and Jacket by Blink-182. I have a weird relationship with Blink-182. I love them now. I love their music, their catalog, all of their back catalog stuff. There was a time when I was in high school where I was like, yeah, it's okay. I like Dude Ranch. I like Damn It. It's all right. And then what happened was they made Enema of the State. It was a huge, huge album with What's My Age Again and all the small things. They were one of the biggest bands in the world for a while. Now, that kind of, I don't want to say turned me off of them, but I was just like, oh, they're literally a boy band. They made a a music video parodying boy bands, but they literally were a boy band at that point. So I kind of fell off of them completely for a while because I thought they were too mainstream and sold out or whatever you want to call it. They followed up Enema of the State with this album, which I'll just call Pants and Jacket, And listening to them now in the year 2020 or 2021, if you listen to these albums back to back, it is amazing the difference in the songwriting quality and the instrumentation between these two albums. Pants and Jacket is such an incredible leap over Enema of the State. It kind of blows my mind. When I listen to Enema of the State, I hear chord progressions that any high schooler could write a song with the classic just overused and recycled over and over and over chord progressions of punk rock they're just on showcase in enema of the state and i don't hate that album it's just so rote and to a certain extent boring for me to listen to musically but when i listen to pants and jacket there's so much great guitar work on here by Tom. Of course, you got Travis Barker, who's one of the best drummers in the world. I know my friend Andre, I don't know if he listens to this podcast, but I talk to him about music a lot. We nerd out on music. He says Travis Barker is overrated as a drummer. And I told him, like, you know, I understand where you're coming from with that, but sometimes people are just rated because they're so good. Uh, and a lot of people say they're so good and then you perceive them as overrated. And then Mark Hoppus, I just think has one of the best like pop punk voices of all time. And I highly recommend this album if you never took the chance to get into it after Enema of the State was in your CD collection and you didn't follow the band through. Now, I know like their self-titled album, which came after this, was huge. It had um, Miss You on it, which was probably one of their biggest hits ever. But anyway, this album, Pants and Jacket, is worth a spin. And uh, my favorite Blink-182 song called Shut Up is on this album. So for that alone, you got to check it out. Awesome, man. Well, my number two pick is by a solo artist. Probably not well known by a lot of people, but the guy's name's Pete Yorn. And he came out with an album called Music for the Morning After. It's a fantastic album. I don't really know how I would describe it. 
it's very similar to the music that Ryan Adams does and that it's sort of that soft Americana type music, but it kind of pushes the realms of being almost pop as well. The album starts out with a song called Life on a Chain, which is amazing. And from there, just progresses into songs that are just hit after hit after hit. It's one of my favorite albums from that time, and I had it at my number one and just swapped it to my number two. So that is how highly I regard this album. If you're into music like Ryan Adams, Pete Yorn's Music for the Morning After is one you should definitely put on your playlist and check out. Very cool. I've heard the name, but I'm not familiar with the guy's music. So that brings us to our number ones. And I think my number one will not surprise anyone because I'm almost certain I've said on this show that this album is one of the greatest albums of all time. It's probably in my top 10 of my favorite albums of all time. I'm not going to pull what I've I've pulled in previous episodes (laughs) because we know my ranking list of all-time best albums right now is... Tegan and Sarah Zakana at number one, and Pink Floyd Animals at number two. Will this album be number three? I don't know. I'd have to really, really think about it, but it's 100% in my top 10. It's Discovery by Daft Punk. Again, when this album came out, I wasn't really into it. Like The hits were out there in the world. Again, this is a kind of thing where I remember when I was in high school, it was really trendy that electronic music was breaking. And you may remember this. They mm-hmm. called it Electronica. Yes, and you did. had the Chemical <laughs> Brothers, the Prodigy, Daft Punk, uh, Basement Jacks, all these other bands. Dust Brothers. Came. Yep. Even Jamiroquai, which was just kind of a yes. disco pop group. Uh, they got kind of lumped in with all that. And for whatever reason, I was super, super into the Chemical Brothers and didn't get into Daft Punk until later. Discovery as an album is just this magical musical journey that you go on. The songs flow into each other. Uh, A lot of the songs have vocals on them. So if you like your electronic music with Uh, singing on them. There's some really good vocal parts. It's a very disco-influenced album. A lot of the samples are from disco music of the 70s, obviously. And it's really just a fascinating album. And it's one of those albums you can listen to multiple times and pick out different things from it. Face to Face is one of my favorite songs of all time. Digital Love is an amazing song. And of course, you got the major hits like One More Time and Harder, Better, Faster, Stronger. I just adore this album front to back. And it's important to mention there was an anime film called Interstellar 5555, which is kind of like, well, I was going to say The Wall, but it's not like that because it's more like the dark side of Oz, where you play the Wizard of Oz and you play (laughs) Dark Side of the Moon over it. So the only audio of the movie is the music. This is an anime about this band that is like enslaved and forced to play in this like totalitarian world in outer space or whatever. And the entire soundtrack of the movie is just the album playing start to finish. It's really cool. And it's a great way to experience the album for the first time if you've never heard it before. I've been thinking a lot about like what makes a perfect album. I think Daft Punk Discovery is one of those like perfect albums, if not damn near close. Very cool, man. I remember around 
1999, my senior year in college, I remember one of my roommates being completely obsessed with Daft Punk, and there was an album that came out around that time. I can't remember the name of it, but uh, probably the album that I've listened to the most by Daft Punk is the Tron soundtrack that they (laughs) did, and it is freaking (laughs) awesome. And what's even cooler, they put out a Tron pinball machine, and it's all Daft Punk soundtrack. I haven't heard this pick, but it's definitely one that I want to check out uh, because I do enjoy Daft Punk. Yeah, I think you would love it because once you start listening to it, the first song on it is One More Time. So you're, you'll are you start out with a familiarity of it and then just let it take you away because all the songs kind of transition into each other. There's like repeating themes throughout the album that you pick up on. It's just so good. I, I know you would like it. So that brings us to your number one pick. What do you got? Yeah, man, it's funny. My number one pick is an album that I was really, really into in 2001. This was the year that I actually discovered this band. It's actually their third album, but I haven't really listened to this album much. I listen to a few songs every once in a while. Just It's kind of just trickled through time on my playlist. And when I made this list... I did not have it on my top five, but I decided just to give the whole thing a listen. Like I said, I'd been listening to this band's first three albums, and I just couldn't remember what songs were on each album. But when I listened to this one, it was just hit after hit after hit. And so it just brought back such good memories of 2001 and made me really appreciate this album so much more and uh, you know, made me really glad that we did this list. But that album is White Blood Cells by The White Stripes. I think it's almost a perfect album. It starts out with Dead Leaves and the Dirty Grass. Hotel Yorba's incredible. Fell in Love with a Girl was probably their biggest song off of this album. And that video is freaking amazing with the uh, Lego video. (laughs) It's really cool. And probably one of their other most famous songs on this album is We're Gonna Be Friends, which is just this soft, childish ballad, but it has a little bit of raunchiness to it as well, which is pretty awesome. I think the only bad song on this album might be I Think I Smell a Rat, and maybe it's something about me with songs about rats, because I can't stand that Smashing Pumpkins song. Despite all my rage, I'm still just a rat in a cage, so (laughs) maybe that has something to do with it. I don't know. But honestly, I think White Blood Cells by the White Stripes is one of the best albums ever made, and one that I can just put on at any time and listen to through and through. Very nice pick. I have to ask, how do you feel about the Pearl Jam song called Rats? <laughs> <laughs> Off of uh, the Versus album, I believe. I'm trying to like remember that song right now, and yeah. this is such a shame that I can't remember it. Yeah, I'm, I may have to reserve my opinion of that until the next show. How about that? We'll have to do a concert cast list. Best songs about rats. <laughs> <laughs> Because I already have three now. (laughs) Top five rats albums. (laughs) Wait, top five rat albums? Like the band Rat? (laughs) Yeah, man. Down in the cellar. Amazing. (laughs) Awesome. Well, I do have a bunch of honorable mentions, but before we jump into honorable mentions, let's do our favorite song from 2001 doesn't necessarily have to be on an album that's on your list. Rich, what do you got? Yeah, now this album did not make my list. 
the album is called Rain on Lens, and it's from the artist known as Smog. His real name is Bill Callahan. He's put albums out as Smog and as Bill Callahan. He's one of my favorite artists of all time. Incredible voice, and I had discovered him around this same time, and not specifically this album. The song is called Natural Decline. It has this just amazing bass line to it, and his voice, like I said, is just so phenomenal and just haunting. Yeah, that's my top pick for song of 2001. Awesome. Well, my favorite song, I had a lot. This was kind of hard to... It was tough, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of great songs and singles and just stuff out there, and I was really jamming on a lot of stuff. But I got to shout out The Sweetness by Jimmy Eat World. Their album Bleed American is from 2001, and I'll just throw that out there as an honorable mention. I really do love that album. But The Sweetness was actually one of the minor hits off this album. People will probably remember songs like In the Middle as bigger songs of the era, and they certainly were. But The Sweetness has this kind of jangly guitar sound and just this like really belted out vocal right from the start of the song. And I always loved that. And I really, (laughs) I really stole that for one of the songs I wrote back in the day. I will always have that connection to that song and I just love it. And that's my song of 2001 for the purposes of this podcast. (laughs) Awesome, man. So let me throw out uh, some more honorable mentions and then we'll wrap this up. I had a lot of albums, Rich. If you had interviewed me in 2001 or 2002, I would say these are my favorite albums of all time. A few examples of those are Feminist Sweepstakes by Le Tigre. For those who don't know, if you have heard of Bikini Kill, Kathleen Hanna, she first did this side project called Julie Ruin, and then she kind of it kind of evolved into this band called Le Tigre. And I used to be really into them and their album Feminist Sweepstakes. I used to love it, but listening back to it now, it is very like, I don't know how to explain it. Like the recording of it is like of its era. It could be so much more lush and I would expect it to be way more uh, sonically bright if it was made this day and age. Now, that's part of the charm of it. I totally understand. And I I don't uh, question their aesthetic choices in making the album. But when I listen to it, that's how I feel. Another band that's like this is a band called Rainer Maria. I used to be obsessed with this band, but now when I listen to them, I can't help the fact that these two people in the band, uh, Caitlin and Kyle, who were the, uh, Caitlin was a bass player, lead singer, Kyle did guitar and background singing. Neither one of them can sing very well. So it's really hard for me to get over that now when I listen to them. Uh, But they had an album called A Better Version of Me, which is... Still a good album to listen to. I'm not going to rag on it too hard, but Kyle Fisher especially cannot sing for his life. So uh, it's kind of hard to get over that. Uh, Saves the Day album, Stay What You Are. Uh, it has to be mentioned. It's one of my favorites. Just didn't quite make my list. Uh, System of a Down, Toxicity, uh, featuring such hits as Chop Suey, came out in 2001. I believe it's the first N.E.R.D. album called In Search Of. I'm not the world's biggest N.E.R.D. fan. I'm, in fact, not very familiar with their music, but I really liked their comeback album uh, that was called Nobody Ever Really Dies or No One Ever Really Dies. I don't remember. 
that album was really good. So I felt compelled to kind of go back and listen to where it all started. And it's pretty good. It's kind of a rambunctious pop rap album as that group is known for. And then another one of my favorite bands that you, I know you're into is Camera Obscura. Their first Mm -hmm. album came out in uh, 2001. I like it a lot. And I think actually some of the songwriting is very strong on that album compared to even albums that came out later. It's just they hadn't kind of hit their stride as far as the sound of the group and they hadn't reached their full potential. So I didn't just want to put it on my list as like a hipster pick because it's not their best album. I have to be honest about that, but it's still very, very good. And I think that's it. What do you have for honorable mentions? Yeah, I'm going to go through these kind of quick. The first honorable mention I have that almost made my top five list. And the reason it didn't make it was it's a bit of a hard listen. It's a very sad and depressing album, but it's beautiful in the same sense. And that is Sparkle Horses. It's a wonderful life. Yeah. It's an incredible album. Sean, I don't know if you've ever been to a show and someone pops up on stage that you didn't know was going to be there and you're just so happy to see them. But around this time, I had gone to Asheville, North Carolina from when I was living in Boone and I went to go see the Flaming Lips. Well, they had an opening band, but then out of nowhere, the lead singer for Sparkle Horse appeared on stage and did a set, and it was phenomenal. I was so excited because, and I think I was like the only one in my group of friends who knew who it was. Like I said, it just wasn't an album that I would share with a lot of people. It's sad, it's depressing, and this guy, a few years later after this album, ended up taking his own life, so... um You know, I do recommend this album. I think everyone should give it a listen, but it might not be everyone's cup of tea. Mm. The other album that I picked, and this is a band that I have recently gotten into in the last five years, so I wasn't really listening to it in 2001, and that's the band Opeth with the album Blackwater Park. This is my second favorite album by then, and it's just a real banger as far as that melodic prog death metal sounds. It's really, really awesome. Another album that I have on this list is Whiskey Town's Pneumonia. Ryan Adams was in the band Whiskey Town before he went out on his own, but uh, he actually did this album with them. It's really good. Lucero's self-titled album, really rough, Southwestern Americana. Yeah, The lead singer's got a very gravelly voice. Very, very good music. I don't think Lucero's put out a really bad album ever. One of my other favorite albums that almost made my top five list is Rufus Wainwright's Poses. Uh, There are two songs on there that I really, really love that almost made my top song of this year. And those songs are California and a song called Cigarettes and Chocolate Milk. I suggest that everyone should check out this album. Once again, I know Sean doesn't like them, but the Shins' first album, Oh Inverted World, came out this year. Another one of those indie bands that I really got into, and uh, this is just a great album through and through. Uh, I have The Strokes, This Is It, that made my honorable mention list that Sean has already talked about. And my next pick is The Microphones, who put out an album called The Glow Part 1. Very experimental. Again, not for everyone, but uh, definitely made my honorable mention list. And finally, a very odd band that, Sean, you've probably listened to some of their stuff, The Moldy Peaches put out their self-titled album and a song that was on my short list for 2011 was Anyone Else But You. This band, their songs are very, very childish and silly, but Mm -hmm. uh, 
I guess they have their own specific audience, and it's not really an album, once again, that you can recommend to a lot of people, but I think some people might appreciate it. It's a lot of fun, and uh, yeah, that's my honorable mentions. Yeah, the Multi Peaches, that was uh, Kimya Dawson was in that band, right? Yeah. I have listened to them. Jesse was hugely into them, and I actually listened to... She has a solo album called... I think it's called Remember I Love You or something like that. And I actually really like her voice. I really like the music. But something about the lyrics, and I don't, I'm not as familiar with the Moldy Peaches as I am with that one solo record of hers, but the lyrics always kind of bothered me. Not because they're childish, but they seem like a train of thought as if I had a guitar in front of me and was just like... You know, oh, I've got a pen on a desk and a USB stick and a yes. microphone and a phone. and a, <laughs> That's and how the Modi Peaches are as well. Very stream of conscious. Yeah, yeah. So I love the sound of the music, but sometimes the lyrics would really get to me. I agree. And that's why this didn't make my top five list. <laughs> <laughs> cool. <laughs> man let's talk a little news absolutely so my first news item is very important and talk about being late to your own party rich (laughs) i almost feel bad about this news item i've seen people get annoyed with other people asking them to join their discord i want to announce that (laughs) it's been around for a while but i'm announcing that rf generation has a discord and unbeknownst to me there's a rfg playcast channel on that discord where people are enjoying our playthrough games and chatting about them with each other and when i discovered this i thought oh my goodness where have i been like you know we need to be in on this so i want to say please join our discord go to rfgeneration.com there's a link to the discord right on the front page there's an rfg playcast channel 
one of the things I find beneficial about it is that it's a little less public than Twitter because when you go on Twitter and you tweet something, even if it's in reply, it shows up in everybody's feed and they see it and they wonder what you're talking about. And it's a little awkward. Not that I have anything to hide, but I just find that system to be kind of awkward about Twitter. Whereas Discord, you feel like you're in a closed group with friends and people who you know who are in there. And meanwhile, like, you know, like Shaggy and Metal Fro are in there talking about Bioshock and they were talking about Gears of War before that. And I was like, oh my God, where have I been? I had no idea either that we even had a channel in there that was even set up. But uh, yeah, it's very cool. And, uh, you know, I think something that we're going to have to check out, you know, and look for comments actually about some of these games. And the reason we discovered this is because we're playing Among Us this December. We've already started that, and we're all chatting on Discord as we're playing. It's been a blast, and I can't wait to talk about that on the next show. Yeah, that's the only reason I put it on my phone was to get in that voice chat to play Among Us, and I had no idea what was awaiting me when I got into that group. It was so (laughs) awesome. Yeah. So I have another kind of cool news item, and that is... Our listeners will remember our former co-host of the show, Stephen. He goes by Disposed Hero. He used to be a full-time co-host of this show. He's been on as a guest since he left the show. And, you know, we love him very much. He's a great friend of ours. And he mentioned when he stepped away from the podcast that he wanted to spend more time on his musical career. And he has recently launched a youtube channel and i gotta tell you he is a phenomenal guitar player and he always he always tweets these like little videos he's very humble about his skills and i'm just like the dude shreds so yeah i gotta call out his recently launched youtube channel is called disposed hero vgm so to all our listeners, please go throw him a sub and check out some of his, his videos. If you, He's doing mostly video game music, so if you just go in for the gaming stuff, you're in for a treat. If you like shredding metal guitar styles, you're in for a treat. And uh, again, Steven's just an all-around great guy, so we want to throw him as much support as we can. Yeah, and just an addendum to that, Steven reached out to me about a month ago. And uh, he said, Rich, you know, I'm just so busy right now and I'm just working on my music and I really just don't have time anymore to write for the front page at RF Generation. I sent him a message. I said, you know, I really appreciate all that you've done over the years. I'm really going to miss you because the guy writes fantastic articles and reviews of games as well. And you should definitely check some of those out on the front page. But he said... December is going to be my last month. I'm just going to write up until that point. But in the new year, you know, maybe you can find someone else. And I said, okay, and went about my business. And then he sends in an article about his new YouTube channel. And so I contacted him. I said, since you're doing this anyway, what about we just put your videos on the front page? And so that's what we're going to do next year for him. So he's going to stay on staff and he's going to post some of his video game music videos on there. Awesome. Yeah. And it's going to give us a better variety of content. And so I was really, really happy to retain Steven and also support him in his endeavors as a musician. Yeah, I think it's going to be a great fit for us and it's going to be very beneficial to him and our site as well. Very good. 
All right, so the last piece of news that we have on the list, and we just kind of threw this into the show not long ago, decided we wanted to talk about it, and that is Cyberpunk 2077. That game was released recently, and it has been one hell of a mess, right, Sean? Yeah, it's been kind of wild. I know everybody knows, so it feels stupid to say this, but for those who don't know, Cyberpunk 77 is a long-awaited title from CD Projekt Red, who makes the Witcher games, and The Witcher 3 was a huge hit, so everybody was kind of eagerly anticipating Cyberpunk 2077. It's been in development for a long time. It was delayed a bunch of times, and every, every time it got delayed, people went up in a tizzy, and it finally came out, and as of the time of this recording, the the quality control on some of the versions of the game is reportedly so bad that certain digital stores have removed the game from mm-hmm. their storefronts and issued refunds to people who are asking for them. Yes, uh, PSN so has the for PSN, sure. Yeah, that was the first one to do it and others have followed suit here. So as far as us talking about this as a news topic, I'm not an expert you know, maybe Frank would be a good person to ask about something like this. But as far as game development goes, I just think the business of game development and having these things on a schedule and having to release games in whatever financial quarter you're in. I know in my business, there's a lot of things that go into this that people don't realize that go on behind the scenes that are just part of corporate business. And it's not just games, it's products. Like any products will get pushed out for the greatest financial benefit. And then you will end up with situations like this. So, and again, it's easy to say, oh, they should have just delayed it more, delayed it more. But they were just getting their butts kicked in the media. And again, maybe they had to hit some kind of financial date to do it, to make money or whatever, or to report their earnings in a certain quarter. That kind of stuff goes on all the time. So just an unfortunate situation. I hate to be kind of flippant about it, but this was a game that I had no interest in. So kind of doesn't affect me. I can just eat popcorn in the background and kind of laugh about it. (laughs) Same here. Yeah. But for the people who were eagerly anticipating this game and had a bad time playing it, I do empathize. That really sucks. So what are your thoughts on this? You mentioned sort of the economic impact and the way businesses have to put stuff out in certain quarters and have to generate money and, you know, have funds to finish games. That's something I really didn't think about. And you're absolutely right about that. In my experience, and it has been this way mainly with my other hobby, which is pinball, what they did several years ago was on the actual boards for the games, they put a spot where you could hook it up to your computer and update your game. So what that caused was a lot of laziness as far as a lot of the manufacturers putting out games where the code wasn't even finished on. And there are a few that they actually never changed the code on. And, you know, people had spent thousands of dollars on incomplete games. So over the years, that's really left a bad taste in my mouth. And I've really never messed with newer games because of that. I just prefer the old ones that are completely finished and don't have the ability for updates. But it seems like these days and with video games, it's sort of the same thing. Some companies are just throwing out games that aren't even quite finished. And I don't know that this was the case with Cyberpunk. As you mentioned before, this is a game that was delayed so many times. I don't know how many times they had to send out posters to GameStop to update the deadline for when this is coming out. But I'm like you. I think that 
they should not set these hard deadlines for themselves. It puts them in a poor position, and it also causes games to come out that aren't quite finished. And companies really need to think more about the quality of their product and not their pocketbook. It's very unfortunate for people that were looking forward to this game, and I I do feel bad for people that dropped a lot of money. But I'm also really proud of Sony and some of the other companies for issuing refunds on this game. I don't know if this is unprecedented or not, but I kind of feel like it is. I think the unprecedentedness of it is exactly that, the game's getting pulled. That seemed like a big deal when it first came out. I'm curious and looking forward to see what the ramifications will be of this. So yeah, I'm not an expert on the certification process, but I wonder what will change and what will come out. There's going to be some really good post-mortem articles on the development of this game, I'm sure. Yeah, for sure. And speaking of articles, uh, one of our site members and CollectorCast host, Crabmaster2000, is actually doing an article on this game. He's already finished it, so uh, no surprise there that he's already finished the game. The guy's a phenomenal game player, but I can't wait to hear what his thoughts are on the game. Yeah, same here. All right, man, let's move into pickups. You want to kick it off, Sean? Yeah, sure, because I, as usual, I have fewer pickups than I do games played, so (laughs) I'll go quickly here. So I don't even have any game pickups. I have one interesting pickup. I got a Blu-ray player, which I was not in the market for a Blu-ray player. I have three PS3s, uh, Xbox One, a whole bunch of other things I can play Blu-rays. However, my friend Senthal, my coworker, he came to where I work. He doesn't work on site where I work, but he came to visit to drop off some stuff. And he had this box in his hand. The stuff he had to drop off for work was on top of this weird box with like pots and pans in it. And I was like, oh, what's with the pots and pans? And he was like, oh, I'm sorry. I just had this in my car and it was easier to carry. This is a box that I'm going to bring to Goodwill. And then as a joke, he was like, oh, do you want some pots and pans? And I was like, no, no thanks. And he was like, oh, uh, what about a Blu-ray player? And I was like, yeah, I might be interested. So he pulls it out. It's a really nice Sony Blu-ray player. And I was like, you know what? I'll take it. Like I can find a use for it. Never owned a dedicated Blu-ray player because, again, I've always had PS3s around, but that was a nice little surprise that he was willing to give to me, so that was cool. You guys are like a f***ing electronic swap meet at work. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes. That is very much the spirit of uh, a select group of people that I work with. Absolutely. And then another, uh, just my other kind of big pickup was a couple of years worth of PlayStation Plus, and it really makes me hope that PlayStation Plus stays around and they don't morph it into something else or change it or discontinue it, because now I'm good until July of 2023. So I picked up a one-year subscription on the PlayStation Network. They had a Black Friday sale for $45 for 12 months. And then another person that I work with, Mike, shout out to Mike, he texted me, hey, check this out. And it was a 12-month subscription for like 30 bucks. And I was like, oh my goodness, got to grab that too. So I ended up adding two years to my PlayStation Plus subscription on the cheap around Black Friday time. So that's it for my pickups, man. Very cool. 
Well, other than Christmas gifts for my kids, I might have mentioned my youngest is actually getting a Switch Lite for Christmas from us, which I know he's going to love, and it will get him the hell off of my Switch so I can actually play it. And in that process, I've traded in a lot of my games. As I mentioned, uh, I had taken a lot to the swap meet that I had done, but I still had a lot of stuff left. So I just traded a bunch of stuff in and was able to get an ass load of Switch games for my boys, which they'll be opening soon and, uh, you know, may make my pickup list next time. But in the process of that, I picked up something for myself. There was a very nice WaveBird controller for the GameCube. I've never owned one. I've always wanted to check one out. So yeah, very happy to pick that up, even though I have been selling off some of my GameCube games right now. I still have enough left that I'm interested in, and uh, really looking forward to checking out that controller, because I know it's very sought after. I also picked up copies of Clockwork Night 1 and 2 for the Sega Saturn. These games were at a price that was unbelievable. They've shot up in value, but... They had been sitting around the store for a long time, and I got both of the games for less than what people would pay for Clockwork Night 2, so that was a really cool deal. For the Switch, I picked up Darius Cosmic Collection. They finally put out Ori and the Blind Forest and Ori and the Will of the Wisps on the Switch, and I'm so stoked about that because it means now there's no reason in hell for me to have to buy an Xbox One. Because these are out on Switch, and I downloaded Cuphead, and so those are really the only games that I've been interested in. If our listeners can think of some that I might be interested in playing that are really off the beaten path, really cool games, let me know. I'm not opposed to picking up an Xbox One, but really now I can't see any games that I'm very interested in for it. Continuing my PS1 collecting, I picked up RC to go, Bugs Bunny Lost in Time, Motor Tune Grand Prix, Spyro Ripto's Rage, and Year of the Dragon, Konami Arcade Classics, Bomberman Fantasy Race, and Pink Panther Pinkadelic Pursuit, which is an incredible platforming game that a lot of people don't know about. And then in one of my local Facebook groups, I found a guy who's selling his collection of Turbo Graphics games to make some money for Christmas. I really love shmups, and so I was able to pick up several that I was interested in. Ordine, Galaga 90, Space Harrier, R-Type, Raiden, and Vigilante. Probably my biggest pickup this past month was Mega Man 7 on the Super Nintendo. It was the last Mega Man game to complete my SNES collection, and uh, really stoked to have that. The label is not perfect, and so I was able to get this one at a good price. I'm not a label fanatic. I do prefer a nice label over a bad one, but when it comes to games that are this expensive, I don't really pick and choose. Like I said, my copy of Earthbound has a tear in it, and I got it for 50 bucks years ago, so uh, it doesn't bother me. I'm just happy to have the games and to play them. And then my last pickup, I've already opened my Secret Santa gift from RF Generation. I know, naughty boy. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I received a copy of the game Boktai 2. And you'll remember we played Lunar Nights uh, two years ago in January, was it? Yeah, oh, I remember. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it made our not-so-favorite list. But if you don't know about these games, what's really cool about them is that they have a light sensor in the cartridge, and you go outside to actually recharge your power using sunlight. It's a really cool mechanic, and due to that, uh, it's something that I really wanted to check out. I just want to thank my Secret Santa. 
I am a really, really tough person to shop for. I realize that, and every time Secret Santa rolls around, I feel so bad about that. But he was able to find this game, which was on my wish list, and this is not a cheap game, so I am very, very thankful. I did an unboxing video, which is on our Secret Santa forums on RF Generation, so check that out if you want. And again, big thank you to my Secret Santa for this one. Awesome. Sounds like you're having a good time with those pickups there. I got to <laughs> kind of catch up with you coming soon, uh, but we shall see. Well, let's roll into what are you playing? Now, Rich, I know you often say, ah, oh, Sean's going to have a bunch, so I'll go first. I think you should because I have 10 games I want to talk about. <laughs> I'll go very quickly, but uh, if you want to go first, that'll probably work this time because I'm true to form playing a ton of stuff. All right. Well, you may be surprised. I actually played four games this month. Good, good. Tell me about them. Yeah, um, of course, I played more Battle Cats. So I won't talk about that. Still going strong. I also played a game that I had picked up for my neighbor for Christmas. And this is a little bit of a pricey game. I'm kind of surprised, but it's Toy Story Street Racer. Hmm. It's definitely a Mario Kart clone, and these were very prevalent on the PS1. I picked up a Bugs Bunny game not long ago that's a kart racer. The Muppets have a game. There's a Smurfs kart racing game, and on and on and on. But I had heard that this was a really good game. It is one of the more pricier kart racing games. I only played a few rounds, but I wasn't very impressed with this one. And so I'm not really sure what the high price is. Maybe I didn't put enough time into it. But yeah, I really didn't enjoy this game. I got it for my neighbor. He really loves Toy Story and he loves racing games. So I thought this will be right up his alley. So uh, this should be a cool Christmas for him. I got him some other stuff too. And then on the same lines, I picked up Toy Story 2 Buzz Lightyear to the Rescue. And I know it's funny, like, these sort of kiddie games, you know, Disney and Pixar, they often get a bad rap, and a lot of them tend to be shovelware, but then sometimes you find a real gem amongst some of these games. And I would say Toy Story 2, Buzz Lightyear to the Rescue, is one of those games. It's a very fun platforming game where you run around, you collect stuff, you talk to other toys in the Toy Story franchise, and I think this game's great for somebody that loves the Toy Story movies, but also someone who loves really, really fun platformers. I really enjoyed my time with this game. I played it for several hours, and this is one that I'm definitely going to go back to and maybe even try to finish. So, uh, great game. If you don't have it, check it out. Toy Story 2, Buzz Lightyear to the Rescue. And then the final game that I played, I had mentioned in my pickups that I picked up the PS1 game, Konami Arcade Classics. I don't typically pick up compilations of games unless there is a great arcade port that is part of it. I saw this one on the shelf at one of my local retro stores, and I pulled it out, and I just turned it over to look at the list. And lo and behold, one of my favorite arcade games of all time it's an arcade cabinet that I've been looking for. My buddy that owns Wieners and Losers has this cabinet in his arcade, and I play it every time I go there trying to get the high score. And that game on there is called Circus Charlie. Now, they did put this game out on the Famicom, and I do have a copy of that. But as we know, on that console, it's not going to be very arcade accurate, and it's not a great port. But finding this on the PS1 
it is a really good port of that game, and I am really happy to have that. You play as a clown who goes through these different kind of circus events, and it's very strategic as far as jumping and moving through these obstacle courses. It's just a real challenging, fun game that I really, really enjoy. So if you've never checked out the game Circus Charlie, it's one that I highly recommend. Just a fun, little-known arcade game made originally by Century. And that's it. Very good. Congratulations on playing some stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Touche. All right, cool. Well, let me get right into it. So I finished Gravity Rush 2. It was pretty good. I'm not going to lie. There were some very unfun segments in this game, and they took the Vita game and tried to blow it up into this way bigger game, which I mentioned in the previous episode, but I felt more strongly about the game in a positive sense in the front half of the game. By the end of the game, I was like, just please let it be over. It started to really wear me out. But I did finish it. I'm not giving like an anti-recommendation. I think if you like the first game, you should definitely play the second game. It's fun. It's just there are parts that are just kind of a bummer. In the same vein, Assassin's Creed 3 Liberation on the Vita. It was cool to play a AAA uh, character action adventure on the Vita. However, it just wasn't a great game. There were some really kind of boring parts. There were some frustrating parts where you can't be creative. There was a lot of times I kept failing missions over and over and over again where I was doing them in a way that I thought was very sensible and strategic. But then I realized that I wasn't doing them exactly the game was like wanted me to do them. And that kind of annoyed me. I like a little bit of freedom and creativity. I was tweeting with Kevin buried on Mars and he said, just go straight to the good stuff and play Assassin's Creed 4 Black Flag. So if I ever pick up this franchise again, I'm just going to play that because I have it on the Wii U. I have here a string of games that I played with my wife, as I mentioned when we were talking about movies. Haven't watched a movie in a while because we've been playing video games, which is really great. You know, I've been married for almost 14 years and Throughout the years, uh, my wife and I have both been into video games, but we've been really streaky about playing them together. We've gone through really uh, hot streaks of playing a bunch of games together, and it turns out we're in one of those right now because we've beaten four games this year, one of which was recently we beat Lara Croft and the Temple of Osiris, which is the second one of these Lara Croft Diablo-style puzzle games, the first one being Lara Croft and the Guardian of Light, if I remember correctly. Guardian of Light is a phenomenal couch co-op game, really well balanced, really makes you think without making you frustrated as far as the puzzles go. Lara Croft Temple of Osiris tries to kind of mine that goodwill of the first game being so good, but doesn't do quite as good of a job. Some of the puzzles are super easy. Some of the levels I feel like I just breeze through with my wife, and some of the levels are so frustrating that I was like, all right, we got to quit for the night. I, I'm, I'm tired of this. But still, if you need more of that puzzly Lara Croft action, it's not the worst game in the world. We're still working on this game called Fable Heroes, which is in the Fable universe, but it's basically a multiplayer beat-em-up, and you can play it online if you want to play. It's like four players at the same time, just running around hacking, slashing kind of beat-em-up game. It's fun. Not too much to say about it. I think it got a really bad reception, but my wife and I kind of like it a lot, so it's an interesting one. We actually beat that game Juju, which I talked about a while ago, maybe three or four episodes ago. We've been playing it for a long time. 
I was actually kind of curious what the reception of this game was because I had never heard of it besides it being on Games with Gold and me putting it on my Xbox 360. So I looked up Juju on Metacritic and I think one of the user reviews sums it up very well where they said, it's like Donkey Kong Country, only boring. <laughs> and I, w- I wouldn't call the game boring, It's but it was very basic as far as platformers goes. One of the things that really saved it and made it enjoyable is the ultra-cute aesthetic of the game. It's very cute, very colorful, very pleasant to play, and the music is out of this world. The music in this game is so good but the level design and platforming is very basic, and the final boss is a huge pain in the ass. But once again, my wife put the finishing touches on the boss. It was so awesome. <laughs> you had to like jump on these air vents on the side of the screen, and the platforming part of it is not my wife's strong suit. And you had to jump on these vents and shoot yourself off the vents and do the attack motion against a really small hitbox of the final boss. And we both jumped on the vents on the opposite sides of the screen, and I missed the jump. And she was the one who nailed it, and she put the final boss away once again. (laughs) So it was awesome. We were high-fiving each other, hugging each other, because it took like 10 or more tries to do this final boss. And I was starting to really grip my teeth. And she maybe would have wanted to quit, but I was like, no, we're doing this, you know? (laughs) So uh, that's Juju. Moving right along here. So I played Xenoblade Chronicles Future Connected. I reviewed this on the blog. I didn't review it. I just said what I've been playing. Don't consider it a review because I didn't really go into the story or anything. I just wrote a little bit about playing the game. It was really good. It's an epilogue to Xenoblade Chronicles. So if you played the main game, especially if you really like Melia and Shulk, they're the only characters from the original game that are in this add-on, then I would recommend it. It's very good. Back to playing games with my wife. She's gotten really into Plants vs. Zombies Garden Warfare, which is the other game that is on the blog article that I just wrote. It was funny. We were looking for games to play together, and I was looking in my PlayStation downloads queue on PlayStation 4, and she said, oh, Plants vs. Zombies, let's play that. And I was like, nah, nah, it's not like the app. It's not like the phone game. This is like a multiplayer shooter. It's like Call of Duty. And she said, so? fired up. So... <laughs> We ended up playing it. We really sucked at it in the beginning, especially her, because, again, not good at 3D controls, but to kind of watch my wife evolve from, like, she doesn't even know how to move or aim to now, yesterday I was out running an errand. I came home and I found her on the couch And she was just running the table on an online game. She was leading with kills. She had like 40 kills and the next best person had like 15. And I was like, what is going on here? Like my (laughs) wife is like an MLG pro gamer at Plants vs. Zombies Garden Warfare. And it's kind of amazing. I don't know what else to say about it. We just started playing split screen together and just kind of fumbling through the horde mode. But she's like a pro now, and she really loves it. It's hilarious. My four-year-old is obsessed with the original game, The Tower Defense. He really, really loves that right now, which is good. You know, it makes him think. Yeah, I'm glad he's playing it. Awesome. The last game that I played with my wife is a game called Never Alone. Have you ever heard of this one, Rich? No, I haven't. So Never Alone is a 
platforming indie game, and it's a lot like Limbo as far uh, as gameplay is concerned. You have this kind of drifty jump mechanic, and you can climb up on things and do little environmental puzzles. But the story is based on an Inuit girl and a fox, and there's a lot actually about Inuit culture. There's these little mini documentaries within the game that you can watch, and uh, my wife appreciated this especially. My wife is Native American, so she really connected with that level of the game. But what makes it cool is that the co-op is the girl character and then there's this fox character and player two can control the fox. So we played this whole game together. It's rather short. How long to beat has it at three hours? It took us a little bit longer because some of the platforming and the puzzles we got stuck on, but I would recommend this game. It's pretty good, especially if you like just Limbo and that indie platformer kind of game. It's definitely in that vein. Yeah, it's definitely worth checking out. It's one of those games that's on everything. We played it on the PS4. I think I also have it on the Wii U, so definitely worth checking out. I'm almost done. Two more. I played this game on the 3DS called Real Heroes Firefighter. Don't ask me why. I just was like picking a random game that I could, you know, let's just fire up a random game and see what it's all about. So I did this Real Heroes Firefighter. I was playing it for a little while. It's really clunky, really not that good. And what's really funny about this game, I made it to mission number two. And you're in a mall and you're running around trying to put out fires because that's what the point of the game is, put out fires and rescue people. And I thought, wow, mission one was really long. I wonder how many missions are in this game. So I look at game facts. There's no FAQs for this game, but there's a message board that says game breaking glitch. So I'm like, oh, man, come on. So I read the message board message and it says... Uh, Not a lot of people realize this, but there's a game-breaking glitch in Mission 2. When you go to the back of the arcade, there's a door that you're supposed to be able to pry open with your pry bar. It doesn't work, and you cannot proceed in the game. There's no way to fix it. So I was like, ah, I'm in the mall, and the last time I put the game down, I had just gotten to the front of the arcade. So sure enough, I open the 3DS, takes me about 30 seconds to get to the door they're talking about, and wouldn't you know, I can't open it. So (laughs) it's just like, all right, I guess that's it. So I'm sending out a warning that Real Heroes Firefighter 3D or whatever the hell it's called does have a game-breaking glitch. It's common from what I gathered from this message board thread. So if that's something that you're looking to put in your collection for whatever reason, just beware of that. Now, is this one of your cheaper games that you get? I don't know what it goes for now. It's just something I've had forever. So, yeah. Okay. So, um, it not hit, clearly. Definitely a hit. Absolutely. <laughs> a big shit. <laughs> And I'll wrap it up with what I'm playing right now, a game that got a lot of buzz last year when it came out. It's called A Plague Tale Innocence. I have this on Game Pass. I'm really debating whether I'm going to renew my Game Pass because I didn't use it quite as much as I wish I had. So a Game Pass is pretty expensive. It's a good value, but it's pretty expensive. Those two things can be true. (laughs) But I may let my Game Pass just expire in February. So I thought, let me go in there and look at what's a recent game that I can play. And I started playing A Plague Tale Innocence. This game is set in, I don't know when, some kind of medieval, (laughs) I guess you could say. It's kind of based around the plague or the Black Plague or whatever you want to call it. 
it is brutal and traumatizing. I've read a lot of stuff that they were kind of trying to go for a Last of Us vibe, or some people have called it a Last of Us ripoff. And it is similar to The Last of Us, only unlike The Last of Us, it's an enjoyable game. Shots fired, I know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, we did a show on The Last of Us and I liked it. I'm not going to lie. But as my kind of disdain and, you know, near hatred of Naughty Dog games, I don't look back on any of them fondly. But Plague Tale is really good. It's a stealthy action game where you play as this uh, young girl named Amicia when I say young, she's like a teenager and you have this younger brother named Hugo and that's your escort mission for the game. It's stealth action to the point where I don't want to give too much away, but uh, let's just say there was something that was a lot of buzz in like game journalism called Ludo narrative dissonance. Everybody's heard this before. And the example that's always trotted out is the Uncharted games. You have Nathan Drake, who's this like lovable ne'er-do-well, who's just this rapscallion, he's a great character, but then throughout the course of the game, you gun down like a thousand people, you know what I mean? <laughs> so that's what people call ludonarrative dissonance. I think they were trying to kind of get at the heart of that in this game, and I'm not super far into it, but the first time you actually kill another person in this game, there's a big to-do made out of it. And I'm not going to spoil it any further than that, but it actually kind of caught me by surprise because it was a situation where I just like, oh, just run up and kill the guy. But then it's not just run up and kill the guy. They really went to a place that I wasn't expecting as far as the development of this main character. The other thing I got to mention with this game you know, animal cruelty is one of my triggers. I don't like seeing animal cruelty in movies or games or anything. This game has so much animal cruelty that it's really been kind of wow. tough. Again, this game in general is super traumatizing and just very, very intense and uh, bleak and dark and will kick you emotionally. Some of the stuff with the animals has been almost too much for me, but I'm going to push through it because I actually am really enjoying the game. Cool, man. Interested in hearing about that next month. Yeah, I mean, I want to follow up because I'm only in, um, there's 17 chapters, I believe mm -hmm. I read, and I'm only in chapter four. So I have a long way to go with this game, but first impressions are very good. always working The mind is always turning The mind is always working The mind is always turning Things over and over And over and over And over The inside, the outside The sight side, the blind side The white side, the fight side
girl's made wrong Rubbing on the wrong thing Or is it just the natural decline? All right, we are going to move into our main discussion, which is Bioshock 2. As usual, we're going to start with our question of the month. To participate in the question of the month, you must follow me at RFG Playcast, join the Discord, or follow my Instagram at Sean Gray, S-H-A-W-N-G-R-A-Y. Although, Rich, I got to admit, I forgot to post this question on Instagram this month, so I don't have any responses there. Let's go. The question is, let's talk sequels. Make the case for your most underrated and or overrated sequels from movies and or gaming. So there's a couple and ors there. I wanted to leave it somewhat open-ended. And I think we started by saying all media, but you kind of reined it in a little bit there. So we got, I believe on Twitter, all movies, but let's get right into it. Totally fine. Let's go. Rocket Sauce says, TMNT 2, Secret of the Ooze. I still enjoy watching this movie. I got to endorse that one. I agree wholeheartedly. Matt Bandy says, Ghostbusters 2 is underrated. Doesn't deserve the hate it gets. Vigo the f***ing Carpathian, man. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I totally agree with that one, man. Yep. I like that one. And it's funny, I should mention the song... Your Love Keeps Lifting Me Higher is on permanent rotation on my Spotify account. Nice, man. Yeah, Bobby Brown singing the soundtrack, too. Yeah, that's right. A little better than Ray Parker Jr. Yeah. (laughs) All right, next, Johnny Dog says, Karate Kid 2 is as good and better in some ways than Karate Kid. Completely agree with that. I actually have that on my underrated list. I love the second one. I think it's much better than the first. I've seen Karate Kid when I was a child, but I haven't. As an adult, I haven't seen any of those movies. Maybe it's time for a rewatch. Yeah, you got some damn Sato on there. OGs know what I'm talking about. All right. (laughs) Next, we got Ray Guitarzan Stevens, and he had a bunch of answers. He said, Road Warrior, way better than First Max. A couple of sequels people go to that I disagree with. Empire, better than A New Hope. It's good, but not better. And Godfather 2, better. Very wrong. (laughs) And then he (laughs) continues. A couple more. Hellboy 2, Lampoon Vacation Movies, Dark Knight, Gremlins, as previously mentioned. And 2010 over 2001, just kidding. So we're going a little (laughs) bit out of order here because these are replies to other people. But here's where Gremlins 2 came in was from actually Kevin Buried on Mars. Mm -hmm. He said, Gremlins 2, the new batch. I'm not much of a fan of Gremlins, but Gremlins 2 is director Joe Dante taking the piss out of sequels. Plus Robert Picardo. It is good times. Mm, I disagree, man. I watched that movie recently. It's awful. It is so bad. Yeah, Gremlins 2 is bad. But I can see what he's saying about taking the piss out of sequels. And I can agree with that part of it. But man, it is a terrible movie. Now, I will say this. The NES game is very, very good. Okay. Good to know. 
Again, Gremlins, I think I watch Gremlins like once as an adult just for fun and for the nostalgia, but not something I watch all the time. I guess I don't have that many movies like that. Next, we have my good friend and yours, Corey Robertson. He says, Dawn of the Dead 1978 is better than its predecessor, Night of the Living Dead. Dawn of the Dead has great acting, slight humor thrown in while remaining a zombie movie, and it's a great story. Yeah, he nailed that, man. Totally agree. And I should shout out, Corey and I saw Dawn of the Dead in a movie theater once, and it was awesome. So I feel like I'm missing a couple. And again, it's a little bit weird on Twitter because people replied to each other. So some of it got lost in the shuffle because I know your boy Ray Guitarzan <laughs> Stevens. Is that a friend of yours, Rich? It is. Okay. Because <laughs> he said something and it might have been on your retweet. Let me see if I can find it because I can't let it go. Oh, I see what happened here. I didn't even realize this at first. So I can explain. As I mentioned before, Ray Guitarzan Stevens says... Godfather 2 being better than 1 is an overrated opinion. So Johnny Dog steps in and says, Godfather 3 is better than 1 and 2 combined. And I had to reply. I said, this is such a hot take that I'm almost certain you're trolling. (laughs) And He's not. (laughs) It's another one of my friends. Okay. (laughs) And then uh, Ray replies, well, all the Godfathers are overhyped and the newest Fargo season is better than all three. But the first one is pretty good because of Brando. So things got a little out there with the Godfather conversation, but I'm all <laughs> I'm here for it because I love trolley answers. As anybody who follows me on Twitter, you'll see I give trolley answers to, you know, corporate accounts questions all the time. So yeah, but that's it as far as responses. And I'm glad uh, some of your buddies, Rich, got in on the action here. Some new names and faces to participate in the question of the month. That's awesome. Yeah, I sent them a text. I'm like, uh, I'm going to need you guys to respond to this. <laughs> they were like, oh, yeah. <laughs> cool. Cool, man. All right. So what about you, Rich? Underrated or overrated sequels of games and or movies? Whew, man, you know, all of mine are actually movies. And I answered both questions, actually, and have a little list for each one. Uh, as far as underrated goes, I got to go Karate Kid, obviously, uh, like was mentioned before. I think the second one's better than the first. Home Alone, the sequel, I think, is better than the original. Ooh. Uh, yeah, probably a hot take. And, you know, it's funny. They're pretty much the same movie. But the thing that puts Home Alone 2 over the original Home Alone is Tim Curry. Okay, fair. Another probably hot take is I prefer Aliens. Over Alien. Sorry, I don't consider that a hot take. That's just the truth. I don't know. I think it's kind (laughs) of hot. Um, When Alien first came out, it was, you know, very scary. It's more like a horror film. Whereas Aliens is more of an action film. It's got some horror elements to it, but I think it's more of an action film. But I still prefer Aliens over Alien. Bring the hate. No, I agree with you there. (laughs) And then probably the final one that's underrated, I would say, is Evil Dead 2. I think Evil Dead 2 is so much better than the first one. It's really kind of a remake, but it's far more comical. I think the original Evil Dead tries to be too serious, but I really like the comic stylings of Evil Dead 2, which was continued on into Army of Darkness, which, not a big fan of Army of Darkness. So, again, bring the hate. And then... 
films that I think are overrated. I think Rambo First Blood 2 is overrated. Now, I love First Blood 2, and it was one of my favorite movies as a kid. But going back now and watching the original Rambo, I really like the story of that a lot more, and I think it's a better movie overall in context and as far as importance than the second movie, which is just a slaughter action film. And then finally, the movie that I think is the most overrated sequel of all time is The Dark Knight. Oh, wow. I think this movie gets way too much hype because of Heath Ledger dying. Just come right out and say it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I have nothing against the guy. I like the guy, but I think Batman Begins is a much, much better film than The Dark Knight. I think Dark Knight is really, really disjointed. I really don't like the portrayal of the Joker character in that film. Wow. I know that's a hot take, but that's how I feel. I'm just going to tack on to yours. This is not my answer, but just to help you set some heads on fire. I think the Dark Knight trilogy in general, the Nolan trilogy is overrated. Oh, I agree, man. Yeah, that third film's a turd. Yeah, I do think Dark Knight is the best of the three, so we'll have to agree to disagree there. But yeah, yeah, I think all of them are overrated. It's okay for you to be wrong. (laughs) That's fine. Okay. (laughs) Well, I'm going to save this question as far as everybody answered movies, which, again, nothing wrong with that. That's very cool. Lots of spicy takes in there, but I'm going to go with some video games. I got a bunch here. Awesome. So I'm going to start with overrated. This is going to be a hot take, and it's kind of a bullshit hot take. You know, I'm being a little bit cheeky here, but I think as far as the Mass Effect trilogy, that two Mm -hmm. and three are a bit overrated. The first one is just a classic, and I've made the case a million times that Mass Effect 1 is the only true Bioware Mass Effect game because that was pre-EA buyout, and then Mass Effect 2 and 3, and 3 especially, are just EA games, you know? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, Mass Effect 2, great game, but I think as far as the Mass Effect trilogy goes, that the sequels are overrated in respect to the first one. I have a bunch of underrated sequels, so... Knights of the Old Republic 2, underrated sequel to Knights of the Old Republic. Again, speaking of Bioware, Obsidian made the sequel. It's very, very good. You think that's underrated, though? I always hear that the second game's better than the first. I've never heard someone say it was better, but it does have a cult following, let's say. Okay. Uh, But I've heard it completely written off as not worthy of anybody's time as well, so... It's kind of in the middle there. A lot of people acknowledge how good it is, but I still think it's underrated. This next pick will surprise nobody who's been listening to the show, but pretty much every sequel to Star Fox, (laughs) like not counting the first game in 64, which everybody loves. But I think Star Fox 2 and... Mm, Does everybody love that game? I seem to remember a certain person on this show that wasn't in love with it. You mean the first game? Yeah. Yeah. Fair. Um, But I'm going to make the case, as I did on that episode, for Star Fox 2. And I'll also throw in Star Fox Zero, which everybody hates, but it's just like, learn the controls and it's an awesome game. Stop complaining and just play it the way it's meant to be played. And it's awesome. Again, everybody kind of knows this, but I think Super Mario Brothers 2 US version is underrated. I like it more than Super Mario Brothers 3. I think it's a really, really fun game. Over the years, it's gotten more and more love. 
to me, and I'm not super in tune with people's opinions of retro games anymore, but it seems like Super Mario Brothers 2 US goes like in and out of vogue as far as people loving it or hating it. Mm-hmm. But in general, I think it's underrated. It's one of the more fun games in the entire Super Mario Brothers franchise. And last but certainly not least, this is my true answer to this question. Splinter Cell Blacklist is one of the most underrated sequels of all time. People hate this game because A, it has so much action, it can't even be called a stealth game in a franchise that's known for how good its stealth gameplay is. The voice actor was changed, so Michael Ironside doesn't voice Sam Fisher. They retconned a bunch of crap in the story that just makes no sense whatsoever. And again, they kind of like call of duty fied the game so all of these things i get it if you're a hardcore old school splinter cell fan you'd hate it i think this game kicked ass i had so much fun with it there wasn't a single dull moment in this whole game i loved it so much so that's my ultimate like underrated sequel people hate this game but i love it splinter cell blacklist awesome well, I do have one underrated game on my list, and that is Goonies 2 for the NES. Okay. Goonies was never released on the NES, but was released on the Famicom. But I just sense that there's a lot of hate for Goonies 2. People just don't like that game, but I played it all the time as a kid. I think it's wonderful. It's a fun action-adventure game. It doesn't really hold true to the movie, but there's so much nostalgia in it for the movie that it's very, very enjoyable. Very cool. So I'm curious, did your wife have any picks for this one? As I neglected to ask this question on Instagram, I also neglected to ask the missus, what about your wife? Oh yeah, Miss Banana had her opinions about this. Okay. (laughs) This one I completely disagree with, but she is obsessed with this movie. So obsessed, in fact, that for her birthday one year, as a joke, I made her a Molaram cake, and that is Temple of Doom. She loves that movie for some reason. I think it's probably the worst Indiana Jones film out there, except for (laughs) (laughs) Crystal Skull. It is the worst movie out there. But that was one of her picks. And then the other one that she mentioned that I wasn't thinking about at the time, but I alluded to it at the beginning of the show is Jaws 2, which I completely agree with. I think Jaws 2 is a fantastic sequel. Interesting. I'll have to see Jaws 2. And it's funny, Temple of Doom is the Indiana Jones movie I grew up on. Temple of Doom and Last Crusade. I've maybe seen Raiders of the Lost Ark once, if ever. Temple of Doom was the one I grew up with, and I remember the dude like pulling the guy's heart out of his chest. Oh, yeah. Scared the out of me as a kid so that oh was- my wife knows that entire chant and she and her brothers used to do that to each other growing up <laughs> oh my goodness yeah yeah that was terrifying as a kid so that's kind of burned into my memory but yeah good choice i think cool well the reason this question came up is because again the game is bioshock 2 this month which in some ways is an underrated sequel in my opinion and we'll get to that or some people could call it an overrated sequel depending on how you look at it the game was developed by 2k marin and published by 2k games i actually had the perception and my memory was a little bit fuzzy on the development of this game The controversy was that it went from Irrational proper to just some other studio in the 2K corporate structure, and that's why people didn't like that. 
But it turns out a lot of the original developers, like individuals from Irrational Games, were on the team that made Bioshock 2. And Ken Levine also advised on the development of this game. So it wasn't like they pulled the franchise away from Irrational or it was just some B team making a sequel, which to a lot of people was the perception at the time. The game was released worldwide for Microsoft Windows, PlayStation 3, and Xbox 360 on February 9th, 2010. Later on, the remastered collection came out, which is what I played it on and what you played it on. As we discussed last month, uh, your adventures getting this game from GameStop. People can check that out if they want to. Yes. That's kind of it for the nuts and bolts. It takes place in the same place, Rapture, only a few years later. I think it's 10 years later, if I remember correctly. So it is very much a direct sequel to Bioshock. And I think that's what a lot of people kind of took issue with was that they weren't trying something new they were just they were accused of just kind of treading the same ground but as we'll discuss they brought many creative elements into the game that are brand new and make for a interesting if not really good gameplay experience so rich as usual it's your responsibility to tell us a story story in 60 seconds New Year's Eve, 1968, in the former underwater utopia of Rapture. It's been eight years since the passing of its founder, Andrew Ryan, and the city has fallen further into despair and civil unrest. It's now under the control of the altruistic Sophia Lamb and her atom-hungry followers. An inactive Big Daddy known as Subject Delta awakens to find that his little sister, Eleanor Lamb, the daughter of Sophia, is responsible for his resurrection and beckons him to free her and thwart her mother's plans. If Delta is unable to unite with Eleanor soon, it will not only mean certain death, but the further dismantling of Rapture and possibly the world. Aided by a legion of little sisters and former entrepreneur Augustus Sinclair, Delta must infiltrate Lamb's stronghold before it's too late. What will be the fate of Rapture, and what possible implications might its legacy have on our world? Very good. And I should throw in at this point, we have a show on the original Bioshock. We played that game two years ago in November. So I would advise and encourage our listeners, if you want to hear way more background than we're going to go into here, because I don't want to retread everything about Ayn Rand and her philosophy and how that was developed into the original Bioshock game and how her ideas were brought into the game and then challenged within the game. I would encourage anybody who wants to hear us talk about that. I think we did a pretty good job of parsing out the philosophy there. And, you know, full disclosure, I'm a huge fan of Ayn Rand's philosophy, but I would actually argue what they tried to do in this game is have a mirror of that. Like the person in power, the big baddie, is actually the opposite of Andrew Ryan from the first game. She is an absolute collectivist. She preaches that everybody is part of a collective. You're part of a family. You have to work for the greater good. So obviously what they tried to do is have like kind of the mirror philosophy of objectivism and free market capitalism, which would be Marxism. They don't use the word Marxism. And I got to say, Rich, I played this game for the first time kind of a while ago. 
And in fact, I have the receipt from my original 360 copy of Bioshock 2. My wife, I remember, pre-ordered it without telling me and bought it for me as a surprise. So that was kind of cool. I remember her just bringing it home from work one day. But I have recollections of the first time I played this game that the politics were really intense, like all over again, just like the first game. But I got to tell you, replaying it nowadays, it almost didn't even interest me. I thought the character of Sophia, she had almost just kind of a one note, not very interesting way of portraying what her goals were. And I was wondering what you thought of that. I know that we're getting into like a really deep question, like right off the bat here, but it's kind of central to the whole story. So I wonder what your thoughts were about that. Yeah, I agreed. I thought this version was a lot more light on philosophy. The first game was very heavy on objectivism. I felt like not that this shift was odd, but that it was sort of like the outside world coming into this utopia and basically implementing a new philosophy to take it over. There were some characters, some of the quote-unquote bosses, that were spouting a lot of the philosophy, and especially there was this idea of Christianity in the game, which, if you remember from the first game, it was more of an atheistic approach. Rapture was founded by Andrew Ryan and really more based on a non-religious approach. And that was sort of the reason that they created this community to escape from religion. So, yeah, I saw a little bit of that in there, some critique on that. But like you said, I definitely felt that as far as philosophy was concerned, it was a lot lighter and didn't really have the impact that the original game had on me when I played it. Okay, good. So it's not just me. And again, maybe it's because I've you know, studied this stuff over the years. But I think if they wanted to, they probably could have pulled in more tenets from like the Marxist, a communist ideology, like, you know, labor theory of value or something. And I'm sure it's in there to whatever extent. And I know there's like a good middle ground between like banging you over the head with it and then just being too subtle. And I think they kind of leaned into being more subtle. And as a result, it wasn't as strong as in the first game. Yeah. Totally agree with that. And then something else with the story, they went back to these auto diaries that were actually present in the first game. I'm kind of curious to hear your thoughts about those as I know typically you don't really care for things like that added into a game. I listen to every audio diary I found. There's the same problem that was encountered in the first game with the audio diaries. One is that you have to hold a button to listen to them. And if you're facing an object to pick up or interact with, you'll do that instead of playing the audio diary. The other thing, too, is if you're playing an audio diary, you might want to stand still because if you walk into a cutscene, the audio diary will just get cut off and you'll go into another character talking to you or something. And you can go back to them in the menu, but I'm always too lazy to do that. Same exact thing happened in the first game. We talked about it in that podcast, too, I remember. So yeah. audio diaries, however, I did listen to all the ones that I could conveniently. And I liked how very much like the first game, you would get these little side stories of characters who had already had their own journeys through Rapture. The one that struck me the most was the guy who came down into Rapture looking for his daughter who had become one of the little sisters. And that actually strung together the story through three or four more audio diaries. It was very tragic. 
I can't think of any other examples. I got to mention, Rich, I played this game two months ago and I played it very quickly because I found the gameplay to be very fun, which we'll get to. But um, my memory might be a little bit fuzzy on these things because I, I didn't have a chance to go for a little bit of a replay before the recording. But yeah, audio diaries in this one, I was kind of in tune with them pretty well and I picked up on a bunch of good side stories. Were you the same way? Yeah, I think you would hear this in our Bioshock 1 podcast is that one of the things I really like about the auto diaries is that they're right there in front of you and you can play them instantly. They don't just go into your inventory and then you have to search them out. So I think that's a really nice feature of them. I do think that there are some shortcomings, like you said. If you, you know, get wrapped up in picking up an item, it kind of screws it up. Or if you go off screen sometimes and a cutscene starts, I definitely enjoy the auto diaries very much. It's kind of neat to put the story together from the perspective of people who have lived there and characters you don't meet. I'd be curious to see how this story played out and how much information you could actually obtain from the story if you didn't listen to the auto diaries or if that's a big part of uh, the game and filling you in on what's going on. Something else I wanted to talk about with the story is... I really couldn't put together how Sophia Lamb and the Splicers worked with each other or why they worked with each other. From the first game, I always thought that the Splicers were sort of very individualistic people that were going around looking for Adam that were obsessed with it. But somehow she has some sort of control over these Splicers. And I didn't really see how that fit the narrative. And I was just kind of wondering if you could maybe explain that to me. I probably can't add too much to it except for there is a mechanic and I don't know if it's contextualized in the story. Mm-hmm. I got to admit, I, I suck at the story on this one and yeah. I, I don't want to. <laughs> it's convoluted though. It really is. It's not as sharp as the story from the first game. That's the thing. I don't want to phone it in too much, but I do remember there's a mechanic in the game of the splicers being able to control machinery with their minds. So I don't, mm. I believe there's some kind of hive mind kind of thing going on there. You remember if, when you do the little sisters mission where you are from the perspective of a little sister. Yes. Sophia Lamb does have some kind of weird controls over people. You have to rescue Eleanor and you can't get too far away from her. That's a big plot device. So there are a lot of things going on here that are a little bit mystic and not so well explained. I hope we don't get killed for this, but again, my memory being a little (laughs) bit fuzzy on it, I'm not sure what the method of control that Sophia has over the Splicers and over Eleanor, etc. Well, I think it says something that your memory's fuzzy over it and that I, having played it more recently, don't understand it either. And I think that's kind of proof that the story has some plot holes in it and that it's not as strong as it possibly could be. That's fair. We'll go with that. Let's see. Let's see how many corrections we got. I want passionate corrections from you Bioshock 2 fans here. Um, yeah, so I think one of the things that is great about this story is that you actually play as a big daddy. What did you think about that? That was actually a big novelty at the time. I remember that was kind of the buzz about the game. Like, oh, you actually play as a big daddy. How cool. Yeah, I mean, I could see that being a big draw when it came out at the time, especially coming freshly off the first Bioshock game, because honestly, the big daddies are the most interesting. I don't want to call them enemies because they're not really enemies. They don't attack until you attack them. 
But the most interesting characters in the first game. So I could see how that would be a really cool draw. Playing it now, I didn't really feel that way. I think I preferred playing as a human in the first game. It was a little more interesting to me. I felt better connected with that because with the big daddies, and again, this is where I have an issue with the story and maybe it's just me, but are they human partially or are they all mechanical robotic? I can't really tell. They are human. Okay. It's hard to say how I know that without spoiling something. Understood. So I'll just leave it at that, that they are human and they do have backgrounds. I agree with you that as much of a buzz there was about it, actually playing the game, it doesn't seem to make that much of a difference. In a sense, it just makes you a little bit slower and your default weapon is the big drill. Yeah. Oh, and you can go underwater. You didn't go underwater in the first game. And there are some underwater segments. Uh, they're just walking. It's not like you're swimming or floating around. You just walk. There's no combat either. Another. Yeah, yeah. I will say one of the things I did was turned off the HUD because there's um, like a mask vision overlay on the screen and I turned that off. And also one of the first perks I took was one that makes you walk faster because you start off as this like yeah, so did I. lumbering big daddy. So I needed to move faster. So I kind of pulled away all the big daddy stuff and uh, just kind of that wasn't a factor in my gameplay. So turns out to be kind of a novelty and again just related to the plot So let's move into gameplay. As with Bioshock 1, this is a first-person shooter where you have normal first-person shooter type weapons, which would be guns, and you also have plasmids, some of which are returning from the first game, some of which are new, 
And there's a little bit of a more robust upgrade system regarding the plasmids, but anybody who has played the first Bioshock game will be comfortable and familiar with the systems here where you will strategize with your plasmids. You will set people on fire and then shoot them or freeze them and then whack them with your drill because there's no wrench like in the first game. It's your drill as your main all else fails default melee weapon. Again, it's hard to talk about this game without retreading a lot of the first game. And again, that's one of the things it was criticized for is that it was the same thing all over again. Again, I would argue that a lot of great stuff was added, but at the core of it, it is the same game play in general. So I don't know if you have anything to add to that before we get into more intricate details, but that's where I'm at so far. Yeah, I think that the game is a little clunkier than the first game. Oh, really? It has to do, I think, with the movement and the fact that you're playing as a big daddy. Now, I think that's purposeful. Mm -hmm. It fits the character more, but I don't know. I just thought that the first game, the movement was a lot smoother and, uh, you know, the attacking abilities. I felt like I was able to dodge better. I was able to move better throughout the game. And the first one than I was this one, I felt like a lot of times I was taking a lot of damage that was very unnecessary. That's just my opinion. No, that's fair. As far as gameplay goes, I think this game is... I don't want to exaggerate. I was going to say leaps and bounds, but that's not quite true. I think the gameplay in Bioshock 2 is way better than the first game. Hmm. As far as movement, weapons, shooting, everything seems to be a little bit fine-tuned. So I think we're not on the same page as far as that, which is fine. It's just interesting that... Our experiences were so different there. I get like movement and everything. And again, by design, you're a little bit slower because you're a freaking big daddy. Sure, sure. Um, But what was your take on like the shooting, the weapons? Like I thought the rivet gun was just a great weapon as far as one of the first weapons you get in the game. The machine gun has its own mechanics where you have kind of a muzzle lift from the recoil of it that you can upgrade to be a little bit smoother. So I thought everything kind of had a form and a function and a purpose as far as the shooting and the plasmid use also, which we can get into. But what did you think about that aspect of the first person gameplay? Yeah, I mean, it was okay. I thought the aiming was good on the game. I really thought that was a great mechanic. As far as the weapons were concerned... I did like the guns and how they function, but I felt like you had to cycle through different guns a little too much on this game. And I know you can upgrade your ammo and how much you can hold, Mm -hmm. but I just felt like it never was enough. Yes. Like the first game, I don't remember using vending machines that much. But with this game, I felt like any time I found a vending machine, I had to stock up. I just didn't feel like there were a lot of items lying around as far as ammunition was concerned. Or it would be ammunition that I didn't use a whole lot of. So I felt like I was toggling between weapons all the time and having to use a variety of weapons. Whereas in the first game, I recall using the shotgun and really loving the shotgun. Loved it in this game too, but I just felt like I wasn't able to rely on one weapon. That's something that bothered me, but I think for a lot of people that play this game, they probably enjoy cycling through the different weapons and being forced to use different things for different enemies. Yeah, you bring up a really good point. I do agree with you that the ammo was maybe a little more scarce than it should have been. I mean, this isn't a survival horror game as we were (laughs) discussing last month, but uh, 
I think that does force a little bit of variety and forces you to learn the different weapons and learn the different ammo types. And we should mention each weapon has two or three different types of ammo. And one of your weapons, quote unquote, is the research camera, which I believe was also in the first game. It was. Yep. So you can use your research camera to research the enemies, which will tell you what ammo type is best to use on that particular enemy, which is useful again. And you will find yourself toggling between weapons and then toggling between ammo types. And sometimes you have to use a more valuable ammo type that Mm -hmm. maybe doesn't match the enemy that you're uh, battling because that's all you have available. So I totally get where you're coming with that. The other thing that's kind of frustrating about that, Rich, I bet this happened to you too. You go to a vending machine to buy ammo and maybe you hack it and it spits out some ammo, but it's shotgun shells and you're full of shotgun shells right, or it's, right. what, it's whatever you don't need always pops out of the machine when you hack it. So that was always like, oh, come on, give me the rivets or give me the spears or whatever it is. So that was kind of funny, but I don't know. You always have the drill and the drill has fuel to spin, but you can just whack people over the head with it if it's out of fuel. It's, it's always there. And uh, it's a good thing to kind of lean on if you don't have anything else. Yeah, and it's especially nice when you have the tonic that actually freezes people randomly when you have the drill. That worked out really, really well for me, especially in some of the fights against the uh, Big Sisters, which were a new enemy addition to the game, which is kind of cool. Yeah, let's talk about some of those new enemies. So. They still have the mechanic of the big daddies who walk around with the big sisters. It's the same thing as the first game. Again, you can fight the big daddies and either rescue or harvest the little sisters. I think I said big sisters a minute ago. I meant little sisters. And it's the same thing as the first game where you are rewarded with Adam, which is used to upgrade your character and your plasmid abilities. You have all that, big daddies and little sisters, but they introduce two major enemy types that I can think of. One is like that brute type mini boss that runs around like a wrecking ball and is very fierce, very aggressive, and uh, very challenging even on the lower difficulty to dispatch those guys. And then even more challenging to dispatch is the big sisters who the game makes a big to-do of the big sisters. They give you a warning when one is coming. You can hear they make this shrieking sound and you get all hyped up for a big sister fight. And unlike the big daddies who are big, hulky, lumbering creatures, the big sisters are these spry, svelte, spiky, sharp feminine versions of the big daddies and they just fly around scraping a lot of discordant sounds and just the vision of sharp edges coming at you (laughs) is what i think of when i think of the big sister it's funny we have talked about games like I'm thinking back to our Gears of War episode a couple of months ago where we said, well, there's not really that much enemy variety. I think with Bioshock 2, they actually kind of really pushed for enemy variety and threw in a bunch of things like those brute guys I was talking about. Like if they had just added the big sisters, you would have a really major element added to the game to reckon with but they added other enemy types as well and brought back other ones like the houdini splicers the spider splicers and all Mm -hmm. the ones you're familiar with from the first game in contrast to like original gears of war they did a really good job with enemy variety i think i didn't feel like i was fighting the same enemies on a constant basis 
What do you think, first of all, about the big sisters and then about the enemy variety in general? I like the big sisters. I thought they're a great addition to the game. And you had mentioned before, like the options with the little sisters, how you can either harvest them or you could rescue them. So what would happen is something that was added to this game that I really enjoyed. And, you know, it kind of extended the gameplay was that you could have the little sisters search for Adam while they were with you. And you would set up this sort of gauntlet of enemies coming at you while the little sister was harvesting Adam. But if you completed these quests, it would add to the Adam that you got when you actually rescued the little sister. So that was awesome. How that relates to the big sisters is that if you did that two times, you would actually awaken a big sister that would come after you. And so during the game, that's mainly how you run in to the big sisters. I think for a lot of the game, you can actually skip fighting them until the ending, of course. But that is sort of how you trigger those big sisters. And like you said, they are action-packed fights. I really like the femininity of the big sisters, how they're quick and spry and how they're not lumbering and just aggressive with rocket launchers and things like that, but how they are really quick to attack and you really, really have to be on your toes. As far as enemy variety, I'm a little conflicted because I didn't feel like the first game had a lot of enemy variety. I felt like it was mainly just different types of splicers and then you would have to fight the big daddies as well. This game adds two more elements. They add the big sisters, and they add the brutes that you mentioned. But as far as enemy variety, it's still maybe like six or seven different types of enemies, which isn't super significant for this game or for most games. So I would say, as far as enemy variety is concerned, of course, better than the first game. But collectively, it really wasn't leaps and bounds over the first game. And so I felt like the enemy variety is still kind of low. That's totally fair. I can't argue with that in a sense. I just think they did good introducing two different types of new mini bosses. I guess yeah, absolutely. I guess I'm kind of latching onto that a bit. So let's talk a little bit about the Adam economy since you mentioned the little sisters gathering mechanic, which is really actually pretty cool. That is the one sense in which playing as a big daddy, you really feel like you can role play in that sense and really calls back to the first game where you're actually on the other side of that glass, uh, you know, protecting the little sisters while she's draining the atom from some dead splicer. In addition to your main weapons, you have throwable weapons like auto turrets and grenades and stuff. It's pretty cool how you have a little bit of time to prepare and you can set up defenses and stuff. Oh, and tripwires and electrical tripwires and stuff like that. I thought it was pretty cool. I didn't do it a ton, though, and I wanted to kind of harken back to the first game where Ken Levine said he wished the Adam economy was a little bit more punitive when you rescued every big sister. So interestingly enough, adding this mechanic means you can just hoard Adam like crazy if you want to do the gathering mini game. And then if you rescue all the big sisters, sorry, I keep mixing up little and big sisters. (laughs) Easy to do. Yeah. If you rescue all the little sisters, Sure, you get a little bit less Adam per sister, but then they leave gifts for you at the gatherer's gardens. And if you go and find them, there's plenty of Adam in them. So once again, playing this game, being a totally good guy, rescuing all of them, 
and not doing the gathering minigame too much. I only did it like maybe three or four times throughout the whole game. Never had a problem with Adam. I did all every upgrade that I wanted to and then some and never even came close to running out. So once again, I think they didn't learn from Ken Levine's admitted regret or mistake or whatever you want to call it of making that economy a little more intense as far as whether you rescue or harvest. (laughs) So it sounds like you're agreeing with me on the other end here that you had kind of the same experience. I did like the extra missions to gather Adam. And again, like you said, it lets you really stockpile it. I think the game's set up for that because you do get things like turrets and trip wires and stuff like that. And that's where I mainly use them at. I would yeah. put them up and then the splicers would mainly attack those turrets and stuff, which they have some pretty good stamina. And so I would just shoot them and pick them off as the turret was firing on them and as they were distracted by that. That was a good implementation into dealing with those types of scenarios. I'm curious, though, I also rescued all the little sisters in Bioshock 1. I wonder if you were influenced like I was to rescue the little sisters because in the first game, you get aid from the little sisters at the end of the game by rescuing all of them. And then also, there are enemies in the game who you have the chance to kill as well, but you can also show mercy and you get some advantages in the game as well. So I guess my big question is, were you influenced by the first game while playing the second game? There's definitely an element to that. And yeah, maybe I had it in the back of my mind. I don't know if it was a conscious thought, but it was probably along the lines of oh, i better rescue them all so i can get oh mine was ending. definitely conscious yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> i think i've talked about this on the show before i am almost incapable of role-playing as a bad guy in any so game even games that set you up for it like the aforementioned knights of the old republic franchise the infamous games are pretty famous for that you can be a good guy or a bad guy I just can never play as a bad guy. Yeah, it's I'm very, way too fucking soft, man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's very strange. <laughs> Especially when you're talking about children, even though they're these weird, like, zombified children, in a sense. It's like, you're rescuing children. Like, how else are you going to go about this, I guess? You know? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's not like they're inhuman. I mean, they're humans that have just been affected, you mm-hmm. know, by this affliction. And so they came to Rapture as human children. So, yeah, it would be really, really hard for me to harvest those. I completely agree with what you're saying. Yeah. Something else I wanted to talk about with this game, which I think is a huge improvement over the first game, is hacking. Oh, my gosh. Yes. I hated those slide puzzles from the first game that sucked so bad. It was like a game of pipe dreams. That's exactly what it was. <laughs> yes. So, uh, yeah, I thought this was much better. Basically, it was just like a little meter, and you would try to get the meter to stop in the green or in the blue, especially you got bonuses for it stopping in the blue. And if you hit the red, you would get electrocuted and lose a little bit of life. It wasn't anything excessive. I thought this system was not only more intuitive, but much quicker. And so I thought that was a great, great addition to this game. Yeah, I actually liked as well that the difficulty on those scaled pretty well throughout the game. And uh, in the beginning, they start out pretty easy. And you're like, oh, I'm a whiz at this dumb little mini game. But towards the end, they get really hard. So I thought they were very well designed in that sense, even though major, major simplification over the first game. But I know the consensus was that that was a good idea to get rid of that stupid pipe dream thing. 
So yeah, hacking returns, all your vending machines can be hacked. Your turrets and the little whirly bird drone things can be hacked. It's a big part of the game. Also, we should mention they introduced a remote hacking tool in this game. Mm -hmm. It's in your weapon wheel, but you can shoot darts at cameras, drones, sometimes like switches for contextual progression in the game. I thought this was a really cool mechanic as well, that you can shoot something from a distance and then hack it. It added a lot to the strategy of the game. Yeah, and some of the darts were auto-hacking darts, so you didn't even have to play the minigame when you did it, which was an even better bonus, yes. you know? Yeah. But I'm curious, was that not in the first game? I felt like it was. Uh, oh, man. Don't put me on the spot. <laughs> on the other hand, don't let me say something that's wrong. Uh well, let's just say whether or not it was in the first game is definitely in the second game, and it's a lot of fun to use. <laughs> Maybe I'm wrong as well, so yeah. Yeah, they do blend together a little bit, which is yeah. just a factor of them being a direct sequel to each other uh, in the same setting. So I think we covered most of the gameplay stuff. I want to say as we transition into graphics and environments, we're going to talk about how Rapture looks in this game. Like I said, it's set a number of years after the first game, and you can really see the further decay of Rapture, which I think was a beautiful touch. You really feel like you're an even more run-down version of Rapture. But I got to throw out, related to gameplay... I think the level design of the environments is a massive improvement over the first game. I really feel like the areas that are linear lead you to where you need to go very nicely, but the areas that are wide open, you never feel lost in them. In my entire playthrough of this game, which, like I said, only took me two days or three days or whatever it was, I just blew through this game. There was only one time that I was like, oh man, I'm really lost and don't know where the hell to go. And the map screen wasn't helping, like kind of thing. Whereas in the first game, I felt like I had that feeling many times. So I just want to kind of shout out and also get your take on, I think the level design of this game was a massive improvement and that it added to the flow of the game in general. And me being a fan as more than you were of the first person and the movement and all that other stuff. The icing on that cake was the really good level design, and I wanted to get your take on that. Yeah, I mean, I thought the level design was fantastic. One of the things, and we haven't mentioned this, is that especially if you're doing a mission, you've got this little arrow that's pointing over your head that directs you to where you can accomplish your mission, which I thought was cool. I don't know if this is just on the easy setting of the game. Yeah, I thought that was really helpful and helps guide you through the game quicker. Yeah. The second game, the environments are a little more condensed than they are in the first game and definitely easier to navigate. Now, I think for a lot of people, this could be a good or a bad thing. Some people like more vast environments, which I can understand too, so it's probably just a preference thing. But as far as the graphics and the environment are concerned, like you said, this raptures eight years later. It's much further degraded than the first game, so I do understand that. But I felt like the first game was a lot more colorful and this one was more drab and damp but again that really goes along with the environment of the game it should be right i don't know there's just something with the first game that i preferred more but i think that relates to the status of rapture at the time absolutely i mean we're talking about graphics now so 
in general, you already mentioned color. The game is a little bit more colorful. There's different types of machinery and stuff mm-hmm. that we didn't see in the first game, which might seem like a retcon, but I mean, it is what it is. Retcon or not, there's some different technology than the first game, like this whole train system. I don't think you had the bathyspheres in the first game, but you didn't have this like railway system that is now a major part of the second game. So different things going on graphics wise, but I really like just the aesthetic of the underwater, just the rusty, like, you know, uh, yeah, there's just a lot of rusty metal and sharp edges mixed with that art deco style. And again, if you want a history of art deco architecture and art movement, check out our podcast on the original Bioshock. With a little steampunk thrown in. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. That's a good call out. So yeah, I don't have any complaints at all about the graphics. Again, I played the remastered version. I thought it looked really good. No bad textures or anything that I could see. Everything looked really sharp, and I think it holds up very well, especially if you play that HD version. Yeah, and something else I picked up on that I want to mention before we move on from graphics and environments, something that we noted in our Fatal Frame 2 playthrough from last month, and that was the falling or moving items that were untouched that acted as a bit of sort of a, I don't want to say a jump scare, but created a lot of unrest in the game through the environment, which I thought was really clever. Yeah, definitely. I think this would be a good time to throw in the segment where you play as a little sister because you see the world through their eyes. And again, however they're like brainwashed, it's a very idealistic, it's almost like a vision of heaven. Everything is very... Mm-hmm lacy and flowing and bright and beautiful uh but you can tell there's uh, some audio cues that there's hints of what is actually going on in the real world but to see the world as the little sisters see them adds a whole new context to the game which you know you get this in the first game even with the little sisters dialogue where they say look daddy an angel all their dialogue is already like pretty dreamlike so to see that put to screen from one of their perspectives was pretty cool i thought that sequence was pretty neat yeah it's sort of like the inverse of they live with rowdy roddy piper you know yeah (laughs) whereas they're seeing all this positive stuff through their eyes uh in the movie they live it's you know the glasses where you can see the negative aspect of what's going on in the environment but uh yeah i thought that scene was clever there's no combat in that scene which i don't want to say was disappointing but to me it was more like a fetch quest yeah but i really liked how they implemented the angels and how you could gather more atom that way for your character i thought that was really cool That scene didn't feel like a waste or a throwaway to me. It was just a really neat implementation into the game. And as far as the lore of Bioshock as well, it just really fit into it and was an interesting addition to the game. The terrible, horrible boogeyman I come in the middle of the night And frighten bad little girls like you Beware, better have a care I'm going to follow you everywhere I crawl through the ceiling and the wall And call on bad little girls like you I'll torture you and haunt you I've got you where I want you A victim of my dark and dirty plot 
And at the slightest whim, I'll tear you limb from limb. In other words, I'll put you on the spot. Ooh, I'm the boogeyman, the terrible, horrible boogeyman. I come in the middle of the night and frighten bad little girls like you. All right, well, let's move on to music and sound effects. Speaking of broken records, I'm going to say the usual. Didn't pay too much attention to the music. I know the composer was the same as the first game. Again, I hate to just do this every single episode, but the music didn't leave any particular impression on me. It just sounded like cinematic video game music. It sounds like you have something Uh, better to say, so go for it. (laughs) Well, it's definitely a mix of like original score, and then there's a licensed music, too, that's in the That is true. Good call out. That's what I love. I I love that licensed music. It's so weird and erratic. That's what I really loved in the first game was the use of the song Under the Sea. It's this odd thing where it's this sort of like happy glory days of almost like the Roaring Twenties music, but somehow it comes off as super creepy, you know, and it just works so well. There were a lot more tracks that were added in the second game. A lot of it was implemented in the load screens between the levels, and I thought that was very clever. I love the music that they used in this game, and uh, it's probably one of my favorite parts of the Bioshock series. I'm glad you brought it up because I totally forgot about that, so (laughs) it's very good. Yeah, that early century like jazz and big band music always fits well with these. It's kind of something that goes hand in hand with the Fallout universe. They do the same thing in that franchise. Works very well and is creepy. Totally agree. But I agree with you about the score, though, too. There's nothing that really stood out as far as the original music in this game. I think the big selling point is definitely the licensed music. And something else that I don't remember, I can't remember if it was in the first game or not, but I love how the frequency of the music just intensifies when you're entering like a big battle. Yeah, I don't think I have anything to add to that. I'm glad you caught on to it. Again, I was more in tune with the sound effects than the music. Yeah, yeah, the sound effects are dope. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Did you read any articles about how they got some of these sound effects, like the sound effects for the Big Sister? No, please tell me about it. Yeah, man, I had read that the Big Sister's sound effects were created by using sounds from birds, hyenas, and someone's wife who was on the development team doing impressions of a dolphin. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah, it's odd, man. But uh, I read that and I was like, wow, that's pretty cool that they could uh, pull that out of those sounds. What would make someone choose those type of sounds? But it works really, really well in the game. Yeah, that's awesome. That's very funny to hear. All right. Well, we're about wrapping it up here. So let's talk about the endings of the game, the final boss and all that stuff. And then we'll roll into our final thoughts. So... Rich, again, admittedly, I'm going to need you to refresh my memory about the (laughs) final boss here. Yeah, absolutely. There wasn't one. (laughs) That's what I thought. (laughs) That's what I thought. I said, was there even a final boss in this game? I don't remember, but there wasn't one. Now that I'm thinking about it, you do have this. It's more of an event, right? It is, yeah. You have this final thing where you finally have Eleanor with you and throw him back to gameplay real quick. 
one of the coolest things that happens in the game is you get a plasmid to summon Eleanor because you have mm-hmm. to fetch a big sister uniform or whatever you would want to call it for her. And she becomes a big sister who will fight for you. Yeah, and this isn't like most games, man. She wrecks house. Yes, yes. Actually reading some blog or watching YouTube videos on this game, it was like, yeah, the summon Eleanor plasmid is game breaking and use it at your it discretion. So I thought that was actually really, really cool. But in lieu of a final boss, you have this kind of final event where you're trying to get on a submarine to escape rapture and all these things are happening. You have to fight enemies, go to a certain office and pull a switch. Then you have to go back into the main area and shoot down some pipes to flood the place. And you have all this stuff going on, which even though it's not a final boss battle, it does get pretty intense. I didn't mind it, Rich. I thought it was fine. Funny story, at the end of that game, I was so used to destroying all the enemies on screen that I really didn't know that it wasn't really an event, and all you had to do was shoot the pipes. I was shooting the pipes, but I was shooting the pipes that were along the bottom closest to the view window. I wasn't looking up and seeing those gold flashing pipes. Yeah. So yeah. I took out so many enemies and must have played <laughs> it for like 20 minutes before <laughs> I realized that all I had to do was shoot the pipes and flood that area. One thing I'll say about the game is that when you need to interact with a Switch or anything you have to find, it's always this very vibrant gold color. Mm-hmm. So you know exactly what you're looking for. And I really like that part of the game. But for whatever reason, I did not look up and see those pipes. And after 20 minutes of just killing things, when I looked up, I was like, oh, clearly that's all I have to But yeah, there is no final boss battle. I think for me, it was a little disappointing in a way because, you know, you think you're going to have this huge confrontation with Sophia Lamb and that just really never happens. Because the first game ends with a battle with a particular main character in that story. So yeah, it's a piece of me that was a little disappointed as I get in all games that don't really have a final boss. And I guess that's just from being such a retro gamer because that's typically what always happens in games. So I guess just kind of being used to that was the reason, but I really have no complaints about the ending of this game and the lack of a final boss. Yeah, and I'll just throw in as kind of a mitigating circumstance that the first game's boss battle, as much as you liked it, and I didn't mind it at all, the first game was heavily criticized for that boss battle because a lot of people said that it didn't fit the narrative, it didn't really make sense, it was kind of just over the top for a game that had this like subdued, intellectual, cerebral kind of narrative. It just got really goofy at the end, so maybe the developers we're cognizant of that and we're trying to lean into something else with uh, the ending that we got here. Yeah. So let's talk about the endings themselves. Again, as we spoke about your harvesting versus saving little sisters plays into this, but also there are those characters that you encounter who throughout the game, they each have a little bit of a history. Some of them have actually harmed you in the past, and that is slowly unveiled to you as you do that level of the game. So when you come up to the choice from a narrative perspective, it's not exactly an easy choice to make. But for me and you, Rich, as we were saying, we're always going to do the good thing and the benevolent thing and spare these people and let them live. Let's talk about the endings, Rich. What ending did you get and uh, what did you think of it? Well, obviously, I got the rescue ending, which I would say 
I'm quoting this good ending, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas where you rescue all the little sisters, you actually die in Eleanor's arms and she takes the atom from you and absorbs your personality. Because of all the good deeds you've done, she leaves rapture to the little sisters who will work to make it a better place. Another one of the endings you can get, which is from Harvesting, which is, again, quote-unquote, the bad ending, is where you've killed all of these human characters who have wronged you, and you also harvest the little sisters. In this case, Eleanor also absorbs your personality, and because of your choices, becomes bent on world domination. So instead of making the world a better place, it becomes a more tragic ending. Number three is a choice ending, which is a mixture of rescuing and harvesting. And so either Eleanor can absorb your atom or Delta can stop her and die, in which case Eleanor will mourn his death and choose to make her own way in life. So there are basically three endings to this game dependent on your choices during gameplay. Now, did you feel the endings were different enough from the ending of the first game because i kind of didn't it's essentially the same thing like you escape and the little sisters either like thank you and go on or you know they're bad and they're mad at you kind of (laughs) thing you know (laughs) yeah i mean there wasn't a lot of variation from the ending of the first game to the second game i really don't know what the harvesting of the little sisters ending was for the first game I think you're right in that um, there are a lot of similarities between the way these two games end. But in another sense, how else could it end? You have to sure. you have to ascend out of the water. You have to surface and see the sunlight. It's very symbolic, obviously. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's kind of hard to think of what else they could have done, you know. And, yeah. and the element of Eleanor is definitely an added thing there. Yeah, I mean, I think the addition of Eleanor gives you more reason to push through the game and see out the ending. It gives you a connection to someone in the game that you're trying to rescue, which I think is just a a really neat addition to this game. And I think this is because of the first game, but I was expecting some sort of big twist at the end. I could never tell if Eleanor was good or bad. I could never tell if Augustus Sinclair was good or bad either. I always felt like I might be being led into some sort of trap in the game. So, yeah, I was kind of uh, kind of on my toes, you know, with this game just to see what happened next. And, uh, again, I think that's due to the story in the first game. Fair enough. I would say, without spoiling it, we're not going to talk about the DLC here, but the DLC known as Minerva's Den is very highly regarded. Some people say it's one of the best add-ons of all time. And if you want that good Bioshock-style twist, play that. It's uh, okay. pretty good, and there's something in there that will explain something I said earlier in, in this discussion <laughs> in a very interesting way, I think, for you. So I played it a long time ago, the first time I played the game, but I, I didn't replay it for this podcast, but it is very good. Yeah, I'll have to check that out for sure. Awesome. All right, well, let's roll into final thoughts. I guess I'll go first here. Again, Bioshock... One is such an important game to me. I really love it. It holds a fond place in my heart. But as I talked about two years ago in the podcast, I found the gameplay and the all around, like getting around the game and getting through the game to be pretty stiff and having not aged as well as I thought it would be. As far as Bioshock 2, I was actually shocked, pun intended, of how fun this game is when compared to the first game. 
I found myself strategizing a lot more, thinking about what I was going to do, using all my weapons, you know, ammo shortages notwithstanding. I was still bouncing around from different weapons and plasmids. We didn't really even talk that much about the plasmids. Again, very similar to the first game. Yeah. Um, but things like the swarm of bees that you shoot out and the cyclone traps and the ice and all that stuff uh, has come back. And I just, for whatever reason, feel Bioshock where it lacks in narrative and story and doesn't go into any kind of deep philosophy. It tries to, it pretend, well, to, to say it pretends to is a little bit pejorative, but I don't mean it in a bad way. That I really appreciate this game more for how much fun it is to play and how much I couldn't put it down because I was just having so much fun running or <laughs> running not so fast, lumbering, if you will, and gunning. So I would recommend this game to anybody who likes the first one, especially. And for what it's worth, we kind of framed this as an underrated sequel or an underappreciated sequel. It actually got a pretty good critical reception, but it didn't sell as well as 2K would have liked it to. So it is underappreciated in that respect. But if you have recently picked up the Bioshock collection and you were just kind of working your way around Bioshock 2. Maybe you just wanted to play Bioshock 1 and then just play Infinite. Definitely, definitely want to go in and play Bioshock 2. It's so much fun. It's just a really good revisiting of Rapture in a totally different way. And like I said, I really want to emphasize that I really think the level design is so well done in this game. It's just a big recommend for me, even with the shortcomings in the narrative. So, how about you, Rich? Final thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I completely agree with you. I think that this is a very, very fun game. I really enjoyed my time with it. However, if I had to choose between playing Bioshock 1 and Bioshock 2 again, I would definitely play the first game before I would play the second one. You know, I may be biased because the first Bioshock game was such an incredible experience for me mm -hmm. because I played it during our playthroughs. I, I didn't play it when it first came out. And with that game, the second one came almost immediately after because of the success of the first game. So I think a lot of people are able to compare them side by side a little bit better than I am having a two year lapse. However, I just felt like this game only had some slight improvements over the first game, and I didn't think that they were really good enough to make me enjoy it more. I think one of the improvements for me was definitely the hacking, but other than that, I didn't see a lot of improvements in this game. I thought the story wasn't as good. I really loved the story in the first game. That's huge for me. The plasmids were the same, so there wasn't really any improvements on that. You had your ignite, like you said, your swarm, you know, your freeze ability, you had your electrocution, all that's from the first game. So I, I didn't really think there were any heavy improvements or anything really to note. And so I got to say, I was much more impressed with the original game. However, I would not dissuade anyone from owning or playing Bioshock 2. I think it's a really good game. But I'm comparing this game to playing the original game for the first time. And it's hard for me to get over that hump of how much I enjoyed that first game and what an incredible experience that was for me. Totally fair. Totally understandable. Totally valid. Final thoughts there. All right. So let's roll into our December game. What are we playing in December? Well, in December, we are actually playing a phone game. We're not doing our typical competition like we've always done. We just decided to play the Smash Pandemic hit 
<laughs> Among Us, which is available not only on the phone, but is available on PC. And then recently it has been brought to the Switch, which is really, really cool. It's going to be great playing this with our site mates and anyone out there who wants to join us. We've set it up to play about three nights a week. It's going to be a lot of fun commiserating with our site mates and having that community bonding experience. We sort of had that during our competition months, but we're usually going against each other. So this will be a much more friendly month of December. And I think with all that's going on in the world, we really need that as a group. Absolutely. And just as a reminder to our listeners and our site members, we will not be doing a game in January for the first time (laughs) in our seven-year history. We're just going to take a break. Let me make a correction. We've done it for six years and we'll be going into our seventh year in February. Okay. Well, I wonder, Rich, do you want to let everybody know what game we're going to kick off in February? Absolutely, man. Tell everyone. Sure. So I'm not going to make any promises for the entirety of 2021, but we talked about how we really trended towards modern games in 2020. We played mostly modern games, hardly anything that was retro. So we're going to at least make an effort to kind of focus on more retro systems. So having said all that, we're kind of stealing an idea that we've done before, but we think it's going to be a great way to kick off 2021. In February, we're going to do a trio of Capcom Disney games for the NES. So we're going to play DuckTales, Chippendales Rescue Rangers, and The Little Mermaid. We did something like this with Disney NES games in the past. It was different games, and we think this will be a great way to kick off 2021. And again, making at least an honest attempt to skew more into retro games in contrast to all the modern games we played in 2021. I'm pretty excited, Rich. DuckTales is one of my favorites. Very popular classic game on the NES, but I'm not super familiar with Chippendales or Little Mermaid. Have you played through all of these games? Obviously, these choices were highly influenced (laughs) by you having played them, I'm guessing. I have played through DuckTales and I have played through Chippendales Rescue Rangers, which is very similar to DuckTales, so I think you will like that a lot. Okay. I have not completed The Little Mermaid. I have played some of that game, so I'm really interested to get into that. Typically, we try to go with titles that are affordable, and as you know, a lot of Capcom games are really, really up there in price, especially games like Tailspin, I think, is going for around $40 right now, and then Darkwing Duck is just kind of through the roof. And then DuckTales 2, wow, let's not even consider that (laughs) in the future. But yeah, these should be three great Capcom titles, and if you want to, I think some of us may even play the DuckTales remastered version this go-round as well. Yeah, I think that should totally be in play, and I would love to discuss that as well. I think it's interesting from the perspective of a remake. would love to throw that in as well. So I'm excited to kick off 2021 after a nice break, a nice easy playthrough in December with our friends over the holidays, and a nice break in January to come back strong with some classic NES titles.
And that will do it for another episode. Thank you as always for listening and a special thanks to all of our participants. In December, we're all acting a bit sus as we break from our annual tradition of competitions to launch into one of the biggest mobile games of the year. Among Us has become a phenomenon in our stay-at-home world, and we're playing it together. Be sure to log on to the forums at rfgeneration.com for schedules of this group playthrough, and we'll see you next time on the Playcast. Basketball. Bow. Blah, blah, bling, blamage. Blah, blah, blah. So, man, you here? Yes. Uh, being a rebel, man. Flip my headphones to the other side because it's better with the cord. So I've got my left headphone on my right ear and my right on my left. Oh, my God. Take that, science. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Ready to get into this? Hold on. I'm putting socks on. Okay. (laughs) Freezing. Depending on the socks, you can put those on whatever foot you want.